0: VOCM presents Open Line. The opinions expressed on this show are not necessarily those of the station. And now your host, Patty Daly.
1: Well, all right, and good morning to you. Thank you so much for tuning into the program. It's Tuesday, June the 14th. This is Open Line. I'm your host, Patty Daly and David Williams. He's producing the program, Let's Get It Going. If you're in the St. John's Metro region, the number to dial to get in the queue is 273-5211. Or elsewhere, it's toll-free, long-distance 1-888-590-VOCM, which is 8626, right off the bat. Thanks to Tim Powers for sitting in for me yesterday. Home, not feeling well. I'm kind of kidding myself. Probably should have stayed home again today. But anywho, thanks a lot to Tim. All right, one more sleep until the Stanley Cup Finals kick in. I know you're probably sick of hearing me talk about Alex Nook, but too bad. The Colorado Avalanche and the Tampa Bay Lightning. Fantastic matchup for the Finals, and that gets going. Tomorrow, I want to say congratulations to the coaches and the players that were members of the U15 NL Selects female softball team. So they were competing in what they're calling the Maritime Provincial All-Star Fast Pitch Tournament this past weekend in Moncton. Funny way to name it, when a team from this province wins, we're not in the Maritimes, we're part of the Atlantic Provinces, but we are the champions. Way to go. They were went 4-1 in the tournament, BPEI in the championship game, 4-1 in seven innings. So it's the first female Provincial All-Star win for a team from this province since 1984. Which kind of strikes me a little bit odd because you know full well that even when you look at the members of Canada's national fast pitch team on the men's side, say, for instance, dominated by Newfoundlanders and Labradorians. And then you go and look at some of the senior national championships and the junior national championships. We produce some of the very finest players in the country, if not the world. And this is the first time the U15 female All-Stars have won since 84, but they got her done. Congratulations to you. Here's a strange one. Trade unions were first legalized in Canada today in history in 1872. And there's some curious stuff going on in the jobs world, isn't there? There was a load of jobs added in May. The unemployment rate in the country is the lowest since 1976, at 5.1%. So there's some talk of the economy in ruins when it doesn't seem to be the case. Now, some of the numbers can indeed be slightly misleading. 5.1% unemployment rate is an awesome number. But there's also been a drop in labor participation. People have dropped out of the workforce. In the early days of the pandemic, the country shed some 3 million jobs. And at this stage, well, November 2021, we are right back to where we were in jobs uh, pre-pandemic. Now, there's a half a million more Canadians working since the beginning of the pandemic. So curious numbers, but therein lies the rub. This competitive out there and employees really do carry a pretty big stick these days. The need for competitive wages and appropriate le- types of benefits. But nothing's keeping up with the cost of living. Nothing's keeping up with the 31 year high in inflation. No end in sight. Another bump in the benchmark interest rate for the Bank of Canada in the offing, right now 1.5%, even though none of us could borrow at that rate. So, yeah, the job numbers look good, but it's still the amount of money you come have coming in the door and the amount of money it costs to pay all of your bills, whether it be to just shop for groceries and or fill up the tank, and everyone knows the pressures that we're all feeling. So, the job numbers encouraging, but still work to be done. I wonder how many people, if you're listening this morning from home and have been working from home for who knows how long now, a couple of years. I had a coffee with a buddy of mine last week, and he does indeed still work from home since the beginning of the pandemic, goes to the office once a week. It's a trend that is not going anywhere. The numbers of people in the world who are now working remotely or working from home has doubled since the beginning of the pandemic. And it's hard to to think that it's going to go back to the normal, back to the office in full. Now, many people will clamor for government employees in particular to get back in the office, the old counter service that we were all so accustomed to. But if you're working from home and if it's working for you, excellent. I don't think personally I could work from home. You know, it feels like an unfortunate situation where your home, your sanctuary, the place where you get away from work also doubles now as your office. But if it works for you and you want to talk about it, let's get at it. And one place where cost of living hasn't really been a big topic of discussion, but it's the enormous pressure in the rental market out there. Vacancy in St. John's, for instance, was about 7.5% this time last year. Now it's around 3%. When you see stories and see pictures of a lineup down the block for people to view a basement apartment... It's absolutely unbelievable. So this one woman reports that she had 400 messages for people lining up to see her apartment. People just willing to pay cash on the barrelhead, more than what was being asked, sight unseen, you know, four kids, two parents looking at a two-bedroom apartment. We have got a rental crush and crunch like I've never seen before. And where the answer lies, I have no earthly idea. But there are some options out there where, you know, Again, like last week I spoke about the fact that in Halifax, for instance, you get a parking ticket downtown that costs between 40 and $45. You can see your ticket written off if you simply shop local. And then in Fredericton, where they're talking about adopting more and more tiny homes. Things that are working elsewhere, we seem to be a little bit resistance, resistant to implementing those ideas here in this province. So let's talk about rentals if you're so inclined, and affordable housing is absolutely a national issue, but what do people do? Is it the rush from people moving from different, more rural parts of the province to the northeast Avalon? It's probably part of it. And we do know that there's prearranged housing for another wave of Ukrainian refugees that are uh, scheduled to land at St. John's International Airport today. So I guess there's a variety of factors. Here's one such program which has eased the problem on both sides of the housing issue. And it's a home share program implemented by the folks at Simon Fraser University. Renowned University in British Columbia. So they're matching students from the university with adults who are 55 years of age and over who have a bedroom available for rent. The rent will be below market cost because part of the issue will be that the student can share in the housework and or shovel the path in the driveway, those types of things. So now you have a student able to find housing and you have a senior potentially who may feel isolated, may be living alone. And now they have someone to eat with and speak with and someone to check in on them. Some of the story has a little bit of a dark side when you talk about the fact that the heat wave in British Columbia last summer and so many people who perished as a result of the heat maybe were unfound in their home for days on end because they live alone. So, yes, there's going to be some potential concerns with your own personal safety, but when the university is in charge of matching a student with you, we know who that person is. The university can do a good job in vetting that person. There could be some monitoring and check-in, and yes, the family or friends of the seniors will also be in the know about the fact that there is a Simon Fraser University student living in the home, renting one of the bedrooms. So. These things make sense. I don't know if the folks at Memorial University or CNA or the Marine Atlantic or pardon me, uh, the Marine Institute, have looked at this, but this seems like a really good idea. I know there's tons of students who are already scrambling for housing for this coming September for the fall session, and who knows, home share programs Simon Fraser University sounds like a pretty good idea to me. What do you think? All right, another pretty good idea. That hasn't got off the ground the way we thought it would. We know of all the shortages across the entire gamut of healthcare and healthcare workers, from doctors all the way down. When the province introduced in 2019 a midwifery clinic that opened up in Gander, it opened up in twi- early 2020, it was said to be just the beginning. Midwives have long played an active role in being the lead in delivering babies in this province. There's a lot of historical notes. My grandmother on my father's side was a midwife. So there was four, and now there's two, only two. There's a lack of staffing support. The closing of the OBGYN clinic in Gander has obviously been a contributing factor as to why it hasn't grown. But when we know that the midwives can absolutely play a predominant role in the delivering of babes, babies as the lead, and also with six weeks of postpartum support, it's a real shame that that program, which we were told, was going to be a real linchpin in dealing with some of these shortages, especially in more rural parts of the province, where you don't live in close proximity to a a clinic and with an OBGYN. So it's hard to know how this went so far backwards I mean what was supposed to be a great news story has gone from four midwives down to two this is something that we've really got to pick up on and understand why this hasn't grown you know gone are the days where there's an easy I'll call it excuse as to how the pandemic interrupted opportunities inside of this one I'm not so sure so this seems to be something that where we can do a lot better job than we're currently doing here in the province for context in British Columbia 25% of the births are supported by a midwife, 17% in Ontario. In this province, 1.1%. 1.1 compared to 25% in BC. Just think of it. Even if it's just the six weeks of postpartum uh, protection and support, that's an important facet that we've got to try to s- figure out how we can get that back on track and expand it beyond just that one sole clinic in Gander. It's still the only one. All right, we're to talk about it. Let's go. And there is good news with CNA and the province, of course, recognizing the fact that we need more trained healthcare workers, and in this case, licensed practical nurses. Adding 92 seats with an investment of some four million dollars. Thereabouts, three point nine million. From the province, we're going to open up those seats. It's going to be at campuses in Bay St. George, Buren, Gander, and St. Anthony. Eight more seats in Carbonear. So looks like there'll be 236 new lpns graduating annually because of this introduction good thing and then add in the five seats at muns med school i know there's some positive work being done i know it's easy enough to be really worried especially if you're on a wait list for a family doctor or a diagnostic procedure and or a surgery but maybe some maybe just maybe some positive steps being taken but you want to talk about that midwife thing in particular let's go and i guess this one's still in the healthcare envelope and i noticed this myself I had to go buy a greeting card. What a scam that is, right? Greeting cards. Anyway, so in the pharmacy, there's a distinct shortage in cold and pain relief medications. You know, someone was telling me that what they see anecdotally in their own world with they have three children, all in the K 12 system, and so many students are out sick, whether it be from COVID or otherwise, but out sick. And so I don't know if that's it or there's still a continued global supply chain problem. But even some of the basics, the benelin and Robitussin and Tylenol, some basics that you'd never think you're going to see a shortage. Now there was a Tylenol scandal a few decades ago. But these things have never looked like there was bare parts of the shelves, and now they really, truly are. So people are scrambling. And even for some prescribed medications, not available. So maybe we can get someone, maybe Janice Adu from the Pharmacists Association of Newfoundland and Labrador would like to join us on the show to help elaborate or fill in the blanks as to why pharmacists or pharmacies are experiencing these type of shortages. You know, blood pressure medications. You know, I get it. It's, it's easy enough for individuals, for governments, for politicians or businesses to think and talk about why things have exploded in cost and access to has eroded for many, for many arenas. Global supply chain, we're learning more and more about just how fragile it is. You know, so you can't be an isolationist or protectionist and be standing alone in this global trading economy, but we have to be a bit more resilient, don't we? You know, whether it be in the pharmaceutical side, whether it be for agriculture, whatever the case may be, if there's interruptions, you know geopolitical issues and global su- uh, global supply chain interruptions it's unfortunate that it's pummeled us the way that it has so I you know increasing capacity is a good thing on many fronts you know self-sufficiency not in full but an increased on that front and it would create jobs there's a lot of win-wins here and one more time I'm throwing it out there I used to think it was a bit of a wild idea but now I'm stuck on it is Insofar as self-sufficiency goes, I would love to hear someone on the government side to talk about not only food security, reliability, and price point, but we have got to start building these small, medium, and large scale greenhouses everywhere in the province. I don't know why we're not doing that, but anyway, you want to tackle it. Let's go. Oh boy, a little shiver there that time. All right. So quick check-in on the oil business. Only bring it up because it is a pretty big story if you're an oil industry watcher. Is British oil giant BP? Acquiring Synovus stake in the Bay de Nord project. So, BP, like many other companies, are moving out of the oil sands. So whether it be the optics politically and or the really incredible upstream emissions intensity compared to our offshore, because it's not just about the optics of it, for access to capital, absolutely it's going to be part and parcel with the oil industry to get money, to get projects off the ground, beginning with exploration and then on to production. Access to the money will come with this sort of social measure. So, interesting. So BP, you know, just another big player here. So they're following the Equinor model, moving out of Calgary and coming to St. John's. You know, they're also involved out in Baden Orb with a couple of the other very encouraging wells, if you are so inclined to be on board with the oil business, but I thought I'd bring up the fact that BP, that's actually big news. You know, it's just remarkable how quickly things turn around. Two years ago, it was nothing but down in the mouth, doom and gloom, the oil business is dead. Well, how things have changed, just in the course of a couple of years. So and I know not everyone's on side of the oil industry for a variety of reasons, including emissions and or climate change, of course, and that's a conversation that we can have. Looking for an update on two of the proposed hydro, uh, hydrogen projects. One out in the port of Stevenville, one in the port of Argentia. They're very encouraging, and I'll, I'll throw this out there between myself and David Williams. We're going to be able to organize some time here on the show with Carl Diamond from the Diamond Group of Companies. Remember the proposal to acquire the Stevenville Airport, building drones, massive investments in the region, creating tons of jobs. Mr. Diamond will be on the show at some point this week. really want to thank Melissa for helping us sort out connection with him. All right, how are we doing on the phone there, Dave? Very quickly. So, lots of talk about the Charter these days, right? And it's important. The Charter of Rights and Freedoms is one of the most important documents in the country for sure. And we've been speaking about the RCMP walking into a home in Mount Moriah, shining a light in the 11-year-old girl's eyes. You know the story. And their explanation is just something else. But as it pertains to the RCMP, the type of training, and the respect for the Charter, there's now been 19 drug and gun-related charges dropped against a man because the RCMP, said, so says the judge, a profound failure of that law enforcement agency to respect the Charter. So no warrant, kept him detained in handcuffs, but the judge d- uh, determined to be an unreasonable amount of time, not informing him of his uh, right and his access to a lawyer in a timely fashion and so these types of things and the type of training and understanding of the charter and the application of the charter doing their critically important duties something has to give and we need to get back on track here used to be to a man to a woman one of the most respected professions in the world was being a police officer whether it be reality perception optics true false american bleeding into our psyche some of this has been eroded. So whether it be the story of Mount Moriah the, or these charges against Yukon man and a variety of things. And also, fascinating story regarding the charter that I read in The Independent. Drew Brown and his team, I think, do really important and interesting work. This is about an application for a crematorium to be added to a funeral home in Cornerbrook. So what was a concern about people didn't want to breathe the emissions from the crematorium has turned into, as the author points out, a human rights matter a constitutional matter. So far too often even some municipal bylaws don't jibe, are incongruent with the Charter Rights and Freedoms. So there's been a second wave of letters sent out to residents in the area who put up lawn signs protesting against the expansion of this funeral home into a crematorium. But the municipality has been told by their own lawyer, that's Cornerbrook, they've been told that this is not aligned with Canada's Charter of Rights and Freedoms and your freedom of expression. So it's fine to have municipal bylaws, and they absolutely have to be enforced if they're on the paper, but they also have to align with people's absolute rights afforded to them in the Charter. Interesting story. Go to The Independent and read this particular one. It's quite something. So Yes, you can have concerns with potential environmental and health impacts, and yes, you should be able to put up a sign. But they're being told to take them down in the city of Cornerbrook, even though the lawyer for the town, or the city, pardon me, has told them that that is, I'll guess, I'll use the word, inappropriate. Last one, and I think this will be welcome and hopefully takes down some of the temperature regarding vaccines in this country. You know, the whole thought that communism, oh my God, China and North Korea, ugh. So the vaccine mandate for domestic travel, the federal government is set to announce today that will come to an end at the end of this month. So the current definition remains two doses and 14 days and or one dose of the J&J vaccine. So for people who have been unable to travel because of their vaccination status, I do think, and this has been my thought for quite a long time now, is that the policy doesn't really make much sense anymore. It was all to encourage more and more Canadians to be vaccinated and it was all about safety. Even though travel via airline and in the HEPA filter in the fuselage has been proven to be very safe throughout, So now unvaccinated travelers will indeed be able to board an aircraft on a train, on the ferries, and all the rest of it said to uh, stop. The mandate goes away by the end of the month. All right, we're on Twitter. We're a VOSM Open Line. Follow us there. Our email address is openline.fosm.com. Let's go. Sticking with 1975 for the tune. We played Love Will Keep Us Together by the Captain and Tennille last week, I think, was it, Dave? Chasing them on the charts today in history was one of the greatest singers of all time, the fantastic Linda Ronstadt, and When Will I Be Loved? Don't Go Away. Welcome back to the show. Let's begin this morning on line number three. Good morning, Kelly. You're on the air. Oh, hi, Patty. How are you? I'm doing okay, thanks. How about you?
2: Good, thank you. Um, Just wanted to call in quickly. Um, You know, we're hearing a lot about the the RCMP and the the House of Mount Mm Moriah. I'm not sure what happened, obviously, you know, we weren't there, but I was just kind of curious. I was wondering if the RCMP had someone trained in mental health with them uh, when they came looking for that little girl because obviously if she's running away, then you know she she has um she needs some help and I guess I'm hoping that the RCMP would have had someone trained like one of their officers trained. For, her, for you know counseling for her right then and there on the spot when they came and got it.
1: I don't know what but the. I'm not
2: hearing much about it,
1: you know. I, I, just a couple of questions that uh, come to mind. So the search for the missing 17-year-old girl. Mm-hmm. W- they say that because they thought she was at risk, possibly in danger. So my takeaway from that was that they thought maybe the 17 year old had been abducted versus had run away so maybe you know I guess that's part of the lack of information which is making the story very very confusing from the onset Mm -hmm. so I'm not sure if it was a runaway situation or they thought maybe someone had kidnapped the girl And I don't know what the level of training that the RCMP has in mental health services. You would imagine they have to increase that type of focus year over year, knowing what we know about mental health in this country. Uh, I know the RNC has increased their mental health training. The adoption of, I think it's called the Memphis model, and there will be a plainclothes mental health professional that responds to calls where they know mental health is a concern. So I can't speak directly to the RCMP and their training, but I have spoken about the RNC and what they do on that front.
2: Yes, I'm pretty sure that the RNC has one. Um, it used to be. I'm not sure if it's Philly's Constable um, Shawna Park, I do believe. But um, And uh, someone can correct me, I guess, if I'm wrong. but I'm not sure if the RCMP and have one. I'm just kind of putting it out there because it's so important that, well, if she was abducted or if she needed help or just, you know, mental health issues or whatever, it's important to have some training. You know, an officer there and a female officer there, if it's a young girl, too, maybe.
1: Right? Yeah, I suppose was- when you're ch- chasing a missing person type story, especially yeah. when you think that person's at risk, then law enforcement officers, men or women, would be part of it. If it's someone yeah. who's at risk personally uh, yeah. because of their own mental illness possibly, then yeah, you have to respond with required training in place. No, no yeah. doubt about it. Now, what we can do is uh, try to connect with uh, Corporal Jolene Garland, who speaks on behalf of the, R- or the RCMP, not only about the specifics of this story, because she did indeed speak to the members of the media last week. I'm not so sure many people were, quote unquote, satisfied with uh, the rationale offered by the RCMP, but specifics of, uh, about mental health training, I'm happy to ask that question because it's more important than ever
2: it really is definitely um i guess i've had a, a kind of personal um not a not, definitely not a run-in but um um, a family member of mine, uh, RCMP, were concerned that uh, they had gotten a call and concerned that a family member um, was suicidal, basically. Uh-huh. And when they did come to my house, um, they were really aggressive. Um, and uh, to the point where I've, I called the supervisor because there was no, and this was probably a year ago, there was no one with them um, with any training in mental health. And they were so aggressive and talking aggressive that it wouldn't have helped someone that was suicidal. Definitely not, you know? So I was wondering kind of if that changed within the last year or not.
1: I don't know, is I guess the short summary answer, but that's something we can absolutely pursue. We try to... Present uh, an an open-minded forum for talking about mental health on this show. I think it's going to be obviously extraordinarily important, and it always has been. But I think more and more people are understanding the issues surrounding mental health and mental wellness and or illness. So, you know, that's something I can pursue uh, on your behalf. I'm sure many others would be interested in how law enforcement and other agencies approach it because it's not just about the aggressive nature and the tone of voice and what have you. Sometimes even just the presence of a uniform can be very intimidating, which is why that one particular model, I'm pretty sure it's called the Memphis model that the RNC has adopted, would bring along a plain clothes mental health professional. So sometimes that's what you really need to bring down the temperature for these types of interactions because, again, and I think I speak on behalf of many people here, even if it's something as fundamental as getting pulled over for speeding, the uniform can be intimidating. It just can. You know, it's a position of authority. I'm not saying that I'm ever fearful when I uh, interact with a police officer because I'm not. And I have many, many friends, members of law enforcement. But just the presence of a uniform can be, you know, getting off to a rough start. And when you get off to a difficult start or an awkward start, sometimes it's difficult to put it back on the rails so that you have a positive outcome, right?
2: For sure, for sure. Really appreciate
1: the thoughts and the time this morning.
2: Thank Thank you so much. Have a great day. Same
1: to you, Kelly. Take care. Thank you. Bye. All right. Bye bye. Yeah, you know, those types of things, we've got to, we just need to know more about it because just information can be very powerful. So, if we had a better idea of exactly what kind of training is associated with mental health, whether it be the RNC, the RCMP, anybody, well, we've heard and seen stories in this province that the outcome has not been what we need it to be. so, yeah, I'm glad Kelly brought it up here this morning. Uh, let's go ahead and take a break. When we come back, Michael wants to talk about the Citizens Rep Report. Tom wants to talk about Tony Wakeham, of course. He's the finance shadow minister for the PC Party, the member for port Porto Porto. Don't go away.
0: Weekdays on VOCM. It's Open Line with your host, Patty Daly. Join the conversation each morning from 9 a.m. to noon on your VOCM. We get people talking. Welcome back to the show. Let's go
1: to line number two. Tom, you're on the air. Hey, Patty. How's it going? Not too bad this morning. How about you? Good, good. I want to throw a couple of things out um,
3: just for everybody's reflection. When I look at why doctors may be frustrated and obviously overworked and and maybe leaving the province or even leaving the profession, I I ask myself, you know, how would I feel if I was a doctor uh, trying to help, especially GP, trying to help the local residents? and. And the unhealthy lifestyles and the chronic issues that it must be so frustrating when you keep sending, you know, you, you, you keep seeing the same people and you just keep adding prescriptions and and uh, people don't necessarily, you know, be involved in their own health. So, you know, I just feel like maybe if we could all collectively come together and try to embrace a little bit of a more healthier lifestyle, that might also be something that would encourage medical professionals to kind of lead in and maybe be part of the solution.
1: Well, I mean, I know and you 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 mention these types of things uh, all the time but I would imagine if you are suffering from a chronic illness regardless of where you are in this country or world the doctors will inevitably be dealing with patients who have what I guess will be referred to as unhealthy habits whether it be with their diet or their lack of physical exercise and or smoking or drinking or drugs or whatever so I imagine many people who land in a doctor's office again regardless of it's in Edmonton Alberta or st. John's Newfoundland and Labrador a chronic illness of bad habits is probably a big part of the conversation regardless of where the doctor practices
4: you
3: No, know, it totally is uh, however I know Newfoundland and Labrador is unfortunately we, le- we lead the country in, in a lot of these real Preventable and chronic diseases. I, I just want to throw it out there for people just to consider. I mean, it's not a blaming thing. It's just you know, as a culture, we seem to unfortunately uh, lean towards unsustainable or unhealthy practices. So you I know, mean, I just just want to throw that into the mix. You know, a lot of times everybody is screaming for more, more, more. But I mean, I think everybody needs to look in the mirror and say, hey, what am I doing to be part of the solution? Uh, you know, obviously, we got to try and uh, meet everybody where they are. But part of that is is people leaning in. I also want to throw something out for consideration. You know, we we talk about um, you know the big profits of businesses and and all the billionaires. I know you mentioned pretty odd, uh, you know pretty regularly how many billionaires were created. Um, but the message that's being lost in 2022 is how many billionaires are being uncreated. So we're now in a beer stock market, which basically means the value is down 20%. So there's a lot less billionaires. Um, the 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 market capitalization of the world has dropped uh, 18.6 trillion dollars so for people's perspective a trillion is a million millions and so in theory there's 18,600 less billionaires in the world just to oversimplify or 18,000 sorry 18,600,000 less millionaires just just bitcoin alone has dropped over $2 trillion in value.
1: Yeah, no billionaires in the... No one's a billionaire because of Bitcoin. Um, The fact of the matter is that there's more billionaires uh, on the planet than there was pre-pandemic. Regardless of how many have come and gone, there's more now than ever.
3: Well, I I don't know. You may be right, but Shopify, which is a Canadian darling company, went from $2,018 a share down to $403. That's 80% loss. Even Ford is down. Ford and GM are both down over 50%. Uh, you know amazon down forty four percent Tesla down forty seven percent i mean i mean you're you 're talking about an incredible amount of money that has just disappeared now a lot of that was run up by speculation and by whatever but um you know it 's you know the other thing when we when we vilify companies, it needs to be remembered too that companies in Canada are taxed, and any any profits that once they pay tax on them then the dividends are distributed to taxpayers who also pay tax. Or, in the case of RSP and stuff like that, then, then funds or pensions and whatever else.
1: Well, I, I think there's a smaller pool of people who are getting dividends than there are would be the population at large. Um, and talking about corporate profit is not an effort to vilify anybody. It's just a part of the conversation. Because if the politicians had their way, when they throw their dim-witted barbs back and forth at each other, they simply talk about what politician, what party, what institution like the Bank of Canada is responsible for inflation and or cost of living, particularly issues but they never mention anything to do with corporate profit which is part of it corporate profits is not a bad word it's at a 70-year high and it's not incorporated in the conversation I think is getting letting the politicians get away with the easy low-hanging fruit of hardly informed political nonsense
3: well there's not that many corporations compared to people but in, in Newfoundland, for example, I think it's about $250 million of, of the government profits – uh, government uh, revenues come from corporate profits when, like, I think it's $1.7 billion or so comes from personal income tax. And, and, and a lot of businesses will actually – small businesses will actually pay out their profit in, in exclamation marks or quotation marks uh, by salaries and then pay tax on it. But anyway, I wanted to respond to uh, Tony Wakeham last week. Oh, do you want to discuss that anymore? I'm sorry.
1: Well, I think that, you know – We've had a real exercising futility in talking about the role of corporate Canada and or corporate North America, what works, what doesn't work. You know, and I think if anyone really wants to pay any attention to something uh, in in the big world, the big scheme of uh, economics, the whole concept of if corporations are allowed to retain more of their money, they pay it out in dividends and they hire more people and they invest in their business, when that hasn't been the case. I mean, that's the concept of trickle-down economics, which does not work. It has never worked. Even if you just simply look at the amount share buyback that massive corporations are involved in I mean that's all anyone needs to know they're not investing in their people by and large they're spending way more money buying back their own shares and hoarding cash than they are doing anything else when they're allowed to so-called keep more of their own money I'll just add that in there because I think that gets lost in the shuffle here you know uh, given a corporation to break depending on what industry and what kind of jobs they create and full-time versus part-time and rate of pay all these things are important of course they are but even in the world of the, uh, the wage subsidy during the pandemic, It was disgraceful. I mean, there was companies for the first time ever offering a dividend to their shareholders. There was companies expanding their dividends. There was companies like the Royal Ottawa Golf Club. They said the quiet part out loud at a a club meeting. They had a million-dollar surplus that was not uh, forecasted, and the buddy who's the treasurer said, it's because of the wage subsidy. That's not what the wage subsidy was for. So, you know, holding people to account, corporations to account is not vilification. It's part of the conversation. That's uh, how I come at it anyway, because I don't think profit's a bad word. I just think we have to... You know, round up the conversation to close all the moving parts.
3: We do. And, you know, just to dive in that a little bit deeper, someone who was, was immersed in the pandemic as a business owner, you were always expecting the worst. And the way the wage subsidy was structured, it was month to month. So um, everybody thought, well, I know personally, I don't know about everybody, but I thought the world was going to basically come financially to an end. So a lot of this accumulated money because people, businesses, unlike governments, reduced their spending dramatically. And that ended up also creating profits, which which I don't know how you deal with that retroactively, but because of the way that it, the wage subsidy was structured, you ended up with uh, reduced expenses. Uh, and then the labor that you were paying out, you, it was being subsidized. And that then did. And in the case of golf courses, of course, they also boomed because they were about the only thing allowed to be open. So it's kind of an anomalous thing. I mean, 95% of companies in Canada are small to medium-sized enterprises, and they are not buying back stocks and they're not paying dividends. They're literally just trying to Living. So yeah, you but know, they don't get the
1: think- kind of support that big corporations get. I mean, again, it, it's not a one-size-fits-all in the business world. It, well, that's the it, challenge. It's with, just not. With, with anyway, you want that. to talk about yeah. Tony Wakeham before you run out of time? Yeah, sorry. So Tony uh,
3: called in, I think it was Friday, calling for the government to distribute any surplus from their oil revenues. And, and you know, and when pushed, he, you know, he mentioned that— uh, the government had a plan to reduce the deficit, and, you know, and really it's not a plan. I mean, a plan to reduce the deficit would be reducing expense spending. I mean, we're bas- basing everything on on oil revenue. Um, and, you know, again, first quarter of this year, oil production is down 10 percent, which is significant. Now, our revenues are up because the price of oil is so high, but you can't count on that forever. Terra Nova will come on stream at some point, which will increase our production. But, of course, we've given away our revenues on that. Um, and, you know that doesn't in, that doesn't factor in the fact that provincial government expenses, just like household expenses, are gonna go up. The price of everything government is also going up. Healthcare costs are going up. We already talked about that in the beginning and and and, and boring costs, which, which uh Minister Cody mentioned are also gonna go up as interest rates go up. So so again you've got a conservative you have a conservative party or you know, and or liberal, but it doesn't matter to stripe. I mean, you know, and I've respect for Tony, he's a he's a good good person, they're hard working for his constituents. However, again, we're Everybody talks about austerity, which is basically the concept that you would that you would spend money when times are tough, and then you would. But then the, the flip side of that, which is always lost, is that when times are relatively speaking good, then you're paying down that money that you might borrow, which which is never done in Newfoundland. We just keep increasing our spending, even though now you could argue we're probably in a really good boom town right now time right now. Um, you know, there's no talk of reducing expenses. So, so there isn't, I mean, we can talk about a plan and and I know that Minister Cody likes to put it out there and she, you know, they're doing, you know, I would say, you know, tough things, you know, they're saying tough things out loud. However, they're not really doing it. You know, our expenses this year to last year are higher. Our budget, it's going up higher. The only reason that we're having this conversation is the cost of borrowing has gone down because interest rates have dropped and, and revenues from oil and mining and, and 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 different taxes have gone up and also help from the feds. So, you know, I just want to just keep putting out there that you know, the situation that we are all collectively in has not changed since the green report. Um and, and and a lot of this a lot of our wealth in Newfoundland and Labrador and how we do is based upon the sale of non-renewable resources which once they're gone they're gone. Future generations won't be able to draw back on them. There's no future fund. And and it just it just needs to be like front and center as we make decisions and the flip side is we have to accept the fact that energy and the cost of everything is going up so we all need to figure out how to do the same with less and, and it's not going to be easy and um, but that's the conversation we need to have uh, and it's tough
1: even if you know it, so spending is a tricky one because everything the government touches is also more expensive same with me and my individual spending habits so even if there was a flat line. That does reflect the cut in spending. So sometimes we look at percentage of increase, You know, whether it be not including what percentage of the increase is involving servicing debt versus actual new spending or departmental spending and or flatline because what they buy on our behalf is also more expensive. So even a flatline would absolutely uh, reflect a decrease in spend if you stand back and look. Uh, appreciate this, Tom. Thanks for the time. Take care, everyone. All right. Bye. All right. uh, Let's uh, take a break. Appreciate your patience. Michael, he wants to talk about the Citizens' Representatives report right after this. Uh, Welcome back. Let's go to line number one. Good morning, Michael. You're on the air.
5: Good morning, Patty. How are you this morning?
1: Doing okay. Thanks for asking. How about you?
5: Oh, very fine, thank you. Uh, I I got a couple of questions really that uh, uh, I've been trying to figure out the answer to. I, I hope number one that uh, this fellow Bruce Chalk is not still on the payroll because uh, his his salary is is significant to the uh, to the to the debt of the province that we're facing right at the moment. But the more interesting is the the report the report that came out about the uh, allegations about nepotism, uh, harassment, all those sort of things. Now our premier came on there. I guess it was last Monday or Tuesday, whenever it was only like about a week ago, and uh, he uh, he spoke of, of this report that was sitting on the, uh, I guess the desk of the uh, of the of the government leader, for numerous months, and that was pretty well his statement. Now my question is this. If that report was kept, and he very clearly indicated that was the first he heard of the report. Uh, My question really is, um, what else is being kept from our premier? Uh, He's got all kinds of executive assistants, deputy prime minister, or premier, I should say. Uh, He's got people in his office like there's, well, more than, I guess, any other premier. And I've heard other premiers simply say, and they state it very categorically and very clearly, the buck stops here.
1: Sure. Just very quickly. Uh, Again, there's more people working in uh, Premier Fury's office than Premier's past. I didn't know that.
5: There's, there's quite a few in there, but executive assistants, uh, there's... Uh, I
1: know people who work there, yeah. Um, anyway, so...
5: You know, they, they work there, so why, what are they doing there if they're not uh, keeping track of all those things and keeping things from our premier? This is, this really, really bothers me.
1: Yeah, it wouldn't be his staff doing it. It would have been the speaker and uh, the speaker's staff. Here's the, the fundamental question for me, and I'll try to address yours as best I can, is when it was first rumored... And someone told me early on too, so Mr. Lane would have brought it up several times. Someone emailed me, they said they were one of the uh, people that was uh, interviewed and they were bullied at Elections NL. So as soon as it was a question being posed, whether it be in general public commentary, whether it be by a member of the uh, House of Assembly, if I'm the Premier, to avoid a self-inflicted wound, I say this. I'll find out, and I'll let you know as soon as possible. I'll go right to the speaker after the sitting and say, do you have this report, yes or no? Because then you can just start to cur- or, uh, you know, stop the bleeding. And even if it's HR matter, you get to hide behind that. I don't know if that's a fair word, but you get to say, okay, these are human resources matters. We will see what the Privacy Commissioner has to say. We will release as much as we can publicly, but I'll find out if there's a report. None of that happened, which is just so weird. So that's is why. This
5: yes, and I got to agree. But it is very, very weird for those kind of things. To happen, especially in this day and age, where you know everything is so instant. Uh, and for the premier to come out to say, "Well, that was the first he heard of it." Now, my question is: Is it, is it the, well, not the first he heard of it, but the first time he saw the report? Right but did he receive did he know of it beforehand i don't know it's really the question
1: well he said the first he saw of it and that was i guess you know like every politician fairly carefully chosen words and it was 4:45 last monday afternoon he said it hit his desk for the first time so but then it even it gets a little bit stranger and so people say well there's bigger fish to fry here cost of living that da, 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 da. but we're still talking about 21 people here and where they work how they're treated and how their life can move on from this so it's not just an innocuous irrelevant issue we We have 21 human beings that are directly impacted by this report. And I would imagine that also includes the impact in the House of Assembly and for the government and for Mr. Chalk and everyone else involved. So, you know, and then the Minister of Justice and Public Safety, Mr. Hogan, Minister Hogan, pardon me saying that the speaker voiced some concerns with how people were talking about this in public and how they knew what was going on well you can't keep a secret in this world so if there's a report and there was 21 people involved and the people at elections now who maybe weren't interviewed they knew there was a report so people talk how do they pretend that any of this stuff is going to be kept a secret and we've got minimum 25 people involved of course people are going to find out
5: Oh, absolutely, there's no question of that, and it goes right back to the to the premier's everything. The book stops at his front desk. and That's it. That's no more to it than that. That's just the way it is. And for him to hide behind, and say, "Well, it's the first he heard of it," well, might very well be the first he heard of it. But did he actually see the report? Was the report kicking around for for well? He indicates very clearly, numerous months.
1: Yeah, maybe upwards of three months uh, as as the story goes. You know, and uh, again, some of these issues, uh, I know people are just thinking, well, you know, I wish I had a doctor shag this report. Yeah. Okay, then the Premier and Minister Hogan, they speak to the media to say that they're uh, asking the Privacy Commissioner to, quote, unquote, scrub the report. And he's not going to do it, <laughs> you know, because he says it was inappropriate, or I'm just you know, paraphrasing his, his reply here, he says, you know, he's not going to be directed to do things, that's not his job, he doesn't want to be part of the decision making on that front, he's there to provide assistance and guidance and advice on privacy and information related matters, so now where are we? Now what's going to happen to that report? The person that we rely on, and I think Michael Harvey does yeoman service for the people of the province, uh, now what? What's next steps with this report? (laughs) Well, yes, exactly. And
5: I think we should have every right to see what's in that report, number one, because, I mean, this is very serious allegations made by a a, a CEO. And uh, I I got a feeling that uh, this this individual who created probably one of the biggest Newfoundland Labrador jokes ever in that calling that election, that at that time when the pandemic was well just flourishing i mean this is absolutely insane now you don't have to be a rocket science to figure that one out. but anyway at are the end you of referring law, like
1: to are you referring to the premier at that stage with that you no know no i'm
5: talking about the ceo bruce chalk
1: well he didn't call, he didn't call the election the premier called the election um
5: yeah but he was responsible for directing the election is well he
1: not? yeah i know it's easy it's easy to take pot shots at bruce Chalk about the way the election was handled but boy i don't know who would have done different to be honest with you you know it was the the fighting between the politicians and elections and now about who had the authority to do what for extensions or mail-in ballots or how it's going to work and all that rigmarole that we all went through but i mean at some point there wasn't going to be in-person voting because you couldn't get people to work at the polling stations so that's just a dog's breakfast that whole mess
5: but anyway, I'd like to see the premier come on and fully explain sure. his involvement, when he knew of it, and not not to hide behind and say, "Well, you know, he only heard of it; he only saw the report." And that's clearly what he says: he saw the report. Like, well, well but did he hear about it before?
1: I, I don't know, Michael. I certainly can't answer that question. But we're we're, a good question. we're we'll try to figure out whatever we can on yours, on your behalf and of the listeners. Appreciate the time, Michael. Appreciate
5: very much. Thank you. Have yourself a great day, my boy. You
1: too. Take care. Bye-bye. Uh, yeah, you know, and again, I totally get it. There are so many big pressing issues that maybe this is not a concern of yours necessarily, but there's 21 people who would like to see what the outcome will be of this particular report and investigation. Let's go to line number two. Good morning, Bill Tizard from Branch One of the Royal Canadian Legion around the year. Good morning, Paddy, and how are you this morning? I'm, I've am i been better, to be honest with you. I, wasn't, I was home not feeling well yesterday. I should have stayed home again today, but here I am.
6: Now uh, you got that stomach flutters on the go.
1: I got a bit of that, boy, I tell you. Anyway, Bill, uh, here we are. Tell us about the dinner and dance. What do you got going on?
6: Okay. Uh, Patty, I'm calling on behalf of the Royal Canadian Legion, Branch 1 at 57 Blackmarsh Road. And Saturday, June the 25th, we're going to have a dinner, dance, and a show. We're going to start the night off with a savoury stuffed chicken breast dinner at 6.30 p.m., Followed by a show by our special guest, the Verplan Players. And after they're finished, we're going to close out the night with a dance with music by Country Gary. Tickets are 35 dollars each. They're available at ranch at the bar anytime between noon and midnight daily, or you can call 5798300. Oh dear, that's a mouthful.
1: That is a mouthful, Bill it sounds like a good time.
6: Well, the Vera Perlin players, uh, Paddy, they are they an exceptional
1: exceptional group. I've seen them many times. There's uh, a young man who I believe is still a member of the Vera Perlin players, was a neighbour of mine growing up around Kent Spawn, Mark Turner. He was one of the singers. Yes,
6: boy. Yeah, uh, great one, To look at those, uh, well, you can't say children no more, they're adults. But oh, the yes, Mark is an adults. adult, yeah. Look at those adults and the way per- they perform, and they're so happy when they're performing. It's exceptional.
1: It absolutely uh, it truly is, Bill. And I'm glad you, you told us about it this morning. So it's on June 25th. Tickets are $35, is that what you said? $35, yeah. $35. Give the folks a number if they'd like to come up and uh, take in the dinner and dance.
6: Five seven nine eighty three hundred. And again, Teddy, uh, to Toveo, Siam and yourself, thank you very, very much for taking uh, my call. We truly appreciate it at Royal Canadian Legion Branch 1.
1: It's my pleasure, Bill. Stay in touch. Thank you. Bye bye. All the best. Bye bye. Bill Tizard, from Branch Number One, the Royal Canadian Legion. How are we doing on the phone, Dave? Okay, let's take a break for the news. Don't go away.
0: Take a break. Join us weekdays from twelve thirty to one p.m. as we discuss anything and everything that's happening now. It's all on the table during your VOCM lunch break. Welcome
1: back to the show. Let's go to Line Number One. Good morning, Dr. John Kilty. You're on the air. Hi. Good morning. Good morning um, to you. Did I pronounce your name properly, sir? Yeah, you did. Okay. Kilty.
7: Yeah. So anyway, um, like everybody else in the province, obviously I watch the news every night and I'm very much aware, working here, uh, of the huge shortage of um, family doctors on the island. But I can't understand, uh, and I'll give you a few examples. I had a nephew that qualified from medical school in Dublin about four or five years ago. He applied to uh, try to get into the province. It took forever sending back this, that, and everything else. He finally gave up. He went off to Australia. I've worked with uh, another student. He was a student at the time who graduated from a medical school, foreign medical school, and he's from here, and his brother has graduated from this foreign medical school. I I worked with the older guy, and I, I really was very, very impressed with him as his knowledge and his everything about him. I thought he was a wonderful guy, and to my knowledge, he hasn't been able to access uh, to any work here on the island, even though he's from Newfoundland, he graduated from medical school, uh, did very well apparently, uh, but anyway. And very recently, I was coming back from Ireland, and I was on the line-up at the airport, and I talked to a young girl there, and she's two years from qualifying in um, the Royal College of Surgeons in Dublin, and she's from Vancouver. So we started chatting, and she was going to Florida to do an elective. And uh, I said, you really should come to Newfoundland. I said, we absolutely need doctors there. She said, no, no, I'm not allowed to come to Newfoundland. I'm not allowed to do electives in Canada. Now, this is an elective. Like, she could come to St. John's and spend a month or something with whoever. And uh, I said, "I I can't believe it, that you're not allowed to come coming from a foreign medical school uh, that you're not allowed to even do an elective here in Newfoundland. I, I just don't understand it. I really don't understand it. And I'm very much aware of the the situation out there. And there's a lot of people, as we speak, that have no doctor. Um, it's just I, I don't understand why, you know, I mean, why they're not allowed to even come and do electives here. I mean.
1: Uh, doctor, is, is an elective what I would be familiar with calling a locum?
7: I know, no, an elective is just like you come to the student and you spend time with let's say uh orthopedic surgeon oh, or a okay. or or a family doctor, and you just spend time here and they'd get to know you and it wouldn't be any cost to the province and uh you'd if you like the place, presumably you would like to come back and uh and I mean you're know, as reminded again, which I absolutely thoroughly endorse the whole idea of uh, the sad situation in Ukraine at the moment and uh, I know a delegation from Newfoundland went over and uh, walked the streets of Kiev and uh, talked to a lot of Ukrainians and I thought that was a wonderful, wonderful thing to do and uh, obviously some Ukrainians have come in here yet or since but uh, it doesn't seem to be any push to go to medical schools abroad and talk to medical students and see why they wouldn't come to Canada and you know I think in fairness Canada has been fairly well serviced by foreign medical graduates over the years and uh, I'm not aware of uh, a whole lot of negative stuff that because of that relationship I, I'm one myself obviously came here in 1977 and uh, I think it's I absolutely love the place but I think I worked fairly hard when I was here and I think I think it was mutually beneficial I just don't understand why there seems to be no push now whatsoever
1: and uh, but you know Well, there's a number of Irish doctors here. That's one thing for sure. Uh, Many of them part of the rugby club. So, you know, I I think you're right. And I do think this is a national conversation. So a couple of things come to mind immediately here. So you mentioned Ukrainians. There was a Ukrainian female doctor who was part of the first airlift that arrived here she had to leave behind her husband, who's also a doctor in Ukraine because, of course, the men weren't allowed to leave. So what's her status? You know, obviously, if she's moved here, she'd like to be able to practice. She trained for all those years to become a medical doctor. We should be able to put her to work, and I'm sure she wants to do exactly that. So with the national conversation it has to take two prongs. We have to understand the accreditation of various medical schools, engineering programs, uh, physical physics and chemistry. But l- let's just figure this stuff out, because we've got people here in the country who have a skill set and an educational background that should allow them to work in their field, and they can't, because we've got a problem swapping or uh, using their credentials and accommodating them here in this country. Secondly, we have got a paperwork, a paperwork bureaucratic nightmare even if I'm practicing in Toronto and I would like to spend a summer here working as a doctor on a locum that they, between the cost and the paperwork everything is just so silly why are there different standards for doctors from province to province in the country let alone for people coming from outside the country to practice medicine in, the, in, the, in Canada it's just all so stupid as opposed to confusing yeah
7: and, and particularly for Newfoundland that we have a, sure. an acute shortage now I mean you know uh, I welcome the idea that they've increased the medical school uh, uh, number of places by five. But like they said the other night on television, that's six years out. A lot of people from Ireland or uh, other foreign medical schools as well, they'd probably love to come for five or six years and uh, relieve that shortage. And, you know, even if we had to tell them up front, look, if we have a full complement of homegrown medical doctors at that time, you you may have to go back. But... uh, I I just don't understand it but when I was talking to these people and I worked with one of these guys and he's right here from St. John's and I was really impressed I mean, I'm not a bad judge I don't think, I was very impressed with him as a medical student and uh, I thought man I tell you would he ever like him out in in Belle Island or Bonavista or somewhere but he, he can't get any traction whatsoever that's my understanding and he has a brother that recently qualified and qualified with honors and you know was one of the top medical stu- students in that school and they can't get any traction at all to work here.
1: It's something we need to grapple with and figure out and I don't think we have much to worry about with we'll have too many locally born and working doctors so we have to inform the newcomer that they're out of luck. I think <laughs> we don't have much <laughs> no, worries yeah, on that front. <laughs> yeah. Anyway hey, I appreciate the friend. sentiment. No trouble. Great. And yeah, thank you so much. Appreciate the time, sir. Thank you, doctor. Keep keep in touch. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. It's Dr. John Kilty. He asks a very important question. You know, even if it's just this one Ukrainian female doctor who is here, what are we doing? And you know, how often have you been in other parts of the country where, whether it's your Uber driver or a server at the restaurant or someone working at the bell desk at a hotel, and they've got training in higher education? But they can't get a gig because their credentials don't translate to getting that gig here in Canada. I mean, especially in the medical field, certainly got to be a way to understand the type of training afforded to someone at the University of Barcelona, whether or not they were willing to work in Briggis, which is just losing their family doctor as well. Let's go to line number two. Good morning, George. You're on the air.
8: Hey, Patty. How are you today?
1: Very well, thanks. How about you?
8: Not bad, not bad. Uh, I just called to uh, congratulate Tim for cutting out that message yesterday.
1: I didn't hear the call, but I heard all about it.
8: Yeah, well, he did the right things. As I was like concerned, that she's stuck in the fifties or something.
1: That woman. Yeah, I, I don't know exactly what was said. I got the gist of it from some of the social media commentary. But you know, curiously, I got an email this morning that said, uh, you know, the lack of tolerance for someone who has a different opinion regarding homosexuals. You know, this, this program should be shut down because she wasn't allowed to say everything she wanted to say. I don't know what went on, but you know, there's a difference between uh, having an opinion and anything that might be considered hate and I've got yeah, no patience well, for it either.
8: No me neither that's I mean like you said she's stuck in the 50s or something that woman uh, what I was really calling about Patty was uh, the Mrs. Carl last week about the pigeon poop problem yeah <laughs> and uh, and them, them fake owls really work by them um, after putting up four or five owls now for different people by and um, solved the problem right away but you got to get the one that swivels in the wind Long as he's moving and you got to put it up as high as you can, overlooking your property or overlooking the problem property, guaranteed works 100% every time.
1: Well, you see him on many places that would see a lot of. Uh birds come around their property like for instance the, the mcdonald's on torbay road i notice that every time that i'm at that intersection is the big owl or a hawk or something up on top of their building and um, i would imagine it works famously so oh, if you've got a concern where you live maybe that's the option that you should
8: oh, consider definitely. if that if that mistress is listening tell her to go out and get one right away and put it up as high as you can and not only them he's feeding the pigeons or whoever is feeding the pigeons that he's also feeding the mice and feeding the rats and everything comes in but when you put up an owl it keeps it all away patty the whole works
1: well i my house backs onto a green space a park and i tell you what the amount of birds up on the wires and out on the grass is unbelievable now they don't bother me and they're not in and around my house they're just out in the parking on the on the overhead wires but man some days and i'm not exaggerating some days we'll see a thousand birds out in the park it's just oh, yeah. unbelievable, especially the little dubkeys, little bull birds, and then the between the crows and the gulls and everything else, man. It's, and, it's and, a, and they
8: all poops, Patty. They all poops, right? They
1: do, indeed.
8: On, on your patio, on your car, on your driveway, everywhere. But when you put up an owl, no more poop. Done. <laughs> I know. <laughs> it works like a charm. I appreciate this. Thanks a lot. All right, all right buddy. Take, you too. Have a good one.
1: You too, George. Bye-bye. <laughs> Bye. Yeah, I guess, I mean, obviously, they do work. Um, and no one's going to build a scarecrow, don't imagine, in your residential backyard, but maybe one of those owls, if you've got a problem with the pigeons or the gulls or whatever else, maybe that's an option for you. Let's take a break, don't go away. Welcome back, let's go to line number five. Uh, good morning, Brian, you're on the air.
9: Good morning, Polly. how are you? Not
1: too bad, thanks, how about you?
9: Pretty good, look, today I'm going to mention, uh, I'm, I'm going to phone an next week and talk a little bit about what happened at uh, Rob and the Lantern School in texas and what i got to say this morning is it's not as important as that but i feel i had to phone you uh i i watched the election returns in the reached ontario election uh i think it would, it would be about two weeks now and on that night on uh, cp-24 They had on uh, journalists, and they had on posters, and, of course, they had had on uh, the the guy who who does question period, Evan Solomon, who I thought was dead and in political heaven. And uh, they talked about the grand victory of Rob Ford, and he did. He had 83 seats.
1: Yeah, Doug Ford, yep.
9: Doug Ford, I'm sorry. Yeah, no problem. And he um, wiped out the opposition, so much so that the leader of the NDP and the leader of the Liberals had to resign. Now, why anyone would want to lead those parties beyond me. But there's a story there that none of them ever talked about. When it was about to go out, they just said, oh, by the way, 40% of people voted. That's a big story.
1: I think it is, too. For context, the Liberals only won eight seats. I mean, they won fewer seats than they did back in the 2018 election.
9: 2019, yeah. Uh,
1: I mean, Stephen DeLuca was obviously a terrible candidate. Any Kathleen Wynne hangover for people of Ontario, you know, DeLuca just didn't make much sense as a, a leader of the Liberal Party, and no. they're, they're quickly becoming irrelevant in uh, Ontario, which is kind of a strange turn of events, but anyway, th- we are where we are, but the voter turnout number, I think, is important. Some people think, you know, well, it's meaningless, and well, there's no one fit to vote for. There's always someone worse on, on the ballot. There really truly is. And so few Ontarians who wanted to put their voice forward to elect a government, you know, of course, that's spurred conversations about mandatory voting and lowering the voting age and all these types of things. But uh, what was it, 41 or 43% in Ontario? It was a pretty pathetically low number.
9: 40%. Okay. But, Patty, the story goes further than that. Okay. When you think about it, all these parties, the NDP, the Liberal NDP... Um, on Election Day, you have uh, get out to vote uh, plans. And when you think about it, uh, people are led to believe that, oh, on Election Day, you get up, you have your breakfast, you go out to vote. That's not the way it, it works. These parties work very hard on Election Day to get out to vote. And I think that three major political parties, the best they could get was 40% that's that that's a lot about our democracy, and I'm going to tell you what's happened. People are losing faith in the organs of government. If you take a look at what's happening down in the states, I'm sure you are you're after seeing some of these hearings coming in from Congress, and the picture I'm getting is that on election night uh when Trump got defeated. You had a d- bunch of drunken fools, I'll call them. And I'm sorry to use that term to refer to the president of the United States. You had a bunch of drunken fools trying to figure out how to, to overturn a duly elected uh, government. And, you know, Paddy, I go down on my hands and knees, and I thank God that 9-11 didn't happen on election night. Thank God we had, they had George Bush to be president.
1: Oh, I don't know. That didn't quite work out. Um, I mean, he, the, the whole issue about weapons of mass destruction, I think, led the world down a dangerous path That's unnecessarily. Right. Yeah. But I mean, Patty, some people call him a war criminal, uh, which is probably not far from the truth.
9: But, Patty, it would have been far worse if Trump been president.
1: Yeah, I, I don't know, and that it's, it's hard to know how he yeah. or the world would have reacted, but I have tried, I've really reduced my consumption of cable news because I find it infuriating, but not feeling well yesterday, home I got caught watching a bit of the hearings, and man, oh man. I know. Anybody who wants to, to see what goes on there, it's pretty extraordinary stuff, and once I found myself about a half hour later watching the bloody hearings, I had to flick it off because it was once again maddening to watch, but
9: anyway. And watching those things, they lose their their faith in government. And we do it here, too. Uh, And I'm not blaming you, but you have people come on your, your radio show, politicians included, and... I, I always try to time when you have politicians on do you know that it takes between one and two minutes for them to be attacking the premier or some minister
1: well yeah it's kind of nature of the beast I try to keep the conversations kind of relevant and focused yeah. But uh, and you know to be fair the show does not have politicians on as frequently as it used to in the past. It just simply does not. Just because a politician calls doesn't mean they get on either. So, yeah, we try to keep the conversations reasonable because what I think people are most interested in is policy and solutions and problem That's solving. Right. You know, the personal stuff is always going to be part of politics. It's just nature of the oh, beast. Sure. But to try to keep it to a bare minimum is probably beneficial to all of us, most importantly, I people listening.
9: I'm probably, uh I was listening to Evan Solomon one morning when they had the uprising on Parliament Hill, and he brought out something that was insightful. At that time, he he was talking to a bunch of people from Parliament, and he said, brought up the issue where the lady who's the interim leader of the Conservative Party was emailing her counterparts saying, how can we blame this on Trudeau? And yeah. he had her email and what have you. And, you know, and I'm not just saying that that's something that she thought of. Opposition parties do it all the time. And in so doing, they not only tear down governments, they tear down the fabric of governments. And I think what happened in Ontario, unfortunately—and I said don't—I don't—I don't don't leave with this— People are losing respect for the organs of government. I don't know, I don't know what the what their voting turnout is like in Newfoundland. I know I don't vote myself very often. I give up. I, I lived in Saskatchewan from uh, uh, beginning in 1979. And it was the first coming in of Grant Devon. Now, Grant Devon was a politician who thought that his last name was a title, not a name. And he ruled Saskatchewan. After Roy Romano came along and defeated him, and after Grant Devon left politics and some of his cabinet ministers ended up in jail, I swore I'd never vote again. And even now, I don't vote too often, and I don't feel bad about it. I'm out of losing faith in the uh, of government, and people are out of losing faith in the of society. Look at the way the Catholic Church is handling the a payment of uh, the payment of sexual abuse of people. Uh, Bishop Kent is running the diocese on press releases. I wish Bishop Kent would tell the Catholics how much money they owe so we could understand what's going on.
1: Oh, but, I mean, as a result of the uh, victims of Mount Cashel, Is that the reference you're making?
9: Uh, Mount Cashel and, and the sexual abuse of priests. you you got to remember, Patty, that this all started with uh, a priest in uh, at the basilica of uh, uh, I, I can I, I don't know if I should mention his name. He's dead don't go to But uh part of the money is going to pay out the sexual abuse of priests. And
1: I think... Uh, victims at the hands of priests? Is that what you're saying, Brian? Yes, Yeah, right. And that always hasn't ended in compensation for victims. Uh, I don't care if you say their name out loud, uh, because if they're convicted of a crime, then that's just public record. And I know one such priest who was, you know, one of the parishes that we were congregants of uh, as children down at Holy Rosary in Portugal Cove, of course, Father Hickey. That's um, right, Jim Hickey. absolutely disgraceful. Um, Brian, I'm, I appreciate the time this morning. We're off to the break. Stay in touch. Yeah. Take care. God bless. You too. Bye-bye. Bye. Yeah, erosion of faith in government, I mean, that's, I think, part and parcel of where we are. Um, and there's no sense having blind faith in government because that's not helpful either. But, you know, politicians probably don't do themselves much in the way of favors. And it is kind of enlightening. And I don't think that this is a one side of the political spectrum alone that does these types of uh, just ridiculously counterproductive issues is as opposed to finding solutions Like their number one goal is the politicians get elected unfortunately for so many of them their num- number two goal get re-elected so just trying to hang something a, a problem on one party or another that happens to be in government provincially or federally is not getting us anywhere you know i know people fall for it and you know, it's the easy play, but it's certainly not making anyone's life better. Uh, let's take a break. Don't go away.
0: Saturday morning, join us for the Irish Newfoundland Show. Send your request to irishnl at com or submit them online at vocm.com.
1: Welcome back. Let's go to line number four. Good morning, Colin. You're on the air.
10: Good morning, Mr. Bailey. How are you this morning?
1: Not too bad, thanks. How about you?
10: Good, thanks. I want to talk about... Um a story that you mentioned uh, in your preamble regarding the RCMP in Yukon and there was a case up there of a man uh, who was in court and had uh, a slew of criminal charges stayed against him by the crown because of uh, breaches of his constitutional rights. The police went into his house without a warrant, conducted a, uh, a rather thorough search of his house uh, denied him the right to counsel, notwithstanding the fact he was uh, detained and under arrest. Um, and eventually, when this case got to court, uh, the judge threw out all the evidence because uh, because of the breaches uh, and and profound uh, 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 breaches of the Charter, according to the judge.
1: He called it a a profound failure. And, I mean, this is a personal, I think it was based on a tip. I gave it a very quick read before I went live this morning. They got a tip, and they acted on it. But, you know, to not acknowledge the fact that as a trained law enforcement officer, a warrant is a pretty important facet, a protection for individuals and just a normal course of business. So this guy, they found drugs. There was cocaine, and there was a bunch of firearms and other things that were thrown aside because of this profound failure, so says the judge.
10: Yeah, and it's uh, it's a case where uh, in in the in Canadian criminal law and constitutional law, it's not that every breach that's committed by the police uh, by the police uh, will lead to the automatic exclusion of evidence. In other words, the police can commit a, a breach of somebody's rights, and uh, and obtain evidence subsequent to the breach, and the court can still rule the evidence admitted. <laughs> And, you know, uh, uh, because for other reasons, the police, the court may determine that the police acted in good faith. It was a minor breach and things like that. And uh, an overarching concern of the court is uh, the effect of or, or the exclusion or the admission of the evidence. And the uh, the effect that it will have on the administration of justice will it bring it into this repute. So it's not just the... Uh, the court being cognizant of the rights of the accused and, and guarding those uh, those rights but it's the overall effect of the uh, the administration of justice and how society would look at that right so there's not a number of balancing um, factors that have to t- take place by the trial court but uh where where a judge essentially guts a crown's case like that like like was the case in the econ that's that's very very serious and the, and the courts will uh, are very cognizant of that. They will not condone uh, that kind of behavior by the police. Right?
1: There's also part of the story where the fellow's partner maybe blasted off a 22 caliber, and then they locked the handcuffed him, did the clearing of the house, a tactical walkthrough. The man, the the accused, admitted to having cocaine in the garage, which they then proceeded to search without a warrant. That got thrown out, even though Buddy admitted the cokes in the garage. Just such yeah. a strange story.
10: Yeah, and, and these, these uh, you know, the evidence in this case is highly probative, you know, uh, if it had to be admitted, uh, there's a very good chance the Crown would get convictions on those cases, but they went in there without a warrant, and the police know, and they're trained, and they're told repeatedly, you know, they get advice from Crown crown counsels all the time on uh, legalities and, uh, of you know, going in places without warrants, with warrants and things like that, and... Uh, where the police conduct a search or a seizure without a warrant, that's prima facie unreasonable. It's presumptively unreasonable in the law, and it automatically attracts Section 8 scrutiny, which every Canadian has the right to be secure against unreasonable search and seizure. So where the police conduct a search um, and seizure or seizure without a warrant, that's presumpt- in the law, that's presumptively uh, unreasonable, and that will attract, attract Section 8 scrutiny. And uh just going down the rabbit hole from there, how much difficulty does it take in, and, and i I realize not all situations are are, are um, uh, you know uh, are timed out and planned, but how much effort does it take to get a judge to sign off on a warrant to go uh provide an information under oath to a judge and convince the judge that there's reasonable grounds to believe that there's evidence of a crime in, at, at a specific location? and get the judge to sign off on a warrant. Sounds about right. If you don't do that, you know, if you don't do that, you're just looking for trouble in a lot of cases. Uh, there was a case here 15 years ago of a, of, a, of a woman murdered in her basement apartment up by YYT. And uh, her husband was uh, subsequently arrested and charged of murdering her. When that case got to court, it was the same situation. The trial judge threw out a lot of evidence, and the accused locked free. He was acquitted, right?
11: You know.
10: Yeah. Uh, Cases. Sorry, go ahead. I
1: can't think of his name at the moment. Yeah, Newman. Right, Ray Newman.
10: Yeah. You know. Yeah. So these these cases, uh, it's in the public interest to have these cases adjudicated under merits, and where the police either they just don't care, or they do care, (laughs) but they're just ignorant or stupidity or whatever it is. You're in the wrong business if you if you do this sort of thing and you don't care or you're just blindly ignorant to the, to the fact that you need warrants and and you have to follow rules and procedures and when these cases get to trial uh these cases are thrown out because of uh, flagrant charter violations i think you, i think you need to look for a new career you're not in law enforcement you shouldn't be in law enforcement in my opinion
1: well, it's just amazing that you know it ever happens at all, um, let alone happens as frequently as it apparently does here in the country. I appreciate the time, Colin, and uh, I do hear from the uh, the family every now and then. Uh, to be honest with you, Chrissy of Newman. Um, yeah, anyway, terrible story.
10: Absolutely. You know, y- y- you look at the trucker convoy that happened in Ottawa, and p- and people up there occupied uh, our capital city of our country for a better part of a month. And uh, they're screaming and bawling about constitutional rights, and constitutional rights get put on the agenda, front and center for the last three or four months now. But uh, three and a half years ago, the federal government brought in random roadside breath testing. Now, right? Yeah. Not a not a peep, crickets. Nobody talking about that—that that the police can stop anybody in the country anytime now, if you have care and control of a motor vehicle, and demand that you blow into a machine. We did. You better pray that that machine says you pass because if it doesn't, you're in a world of trouble.
1: Yeah, you and I talked about it. That's for sure. Yeah. <laughs> I appreciate this, Colin. Thanks for the call. Thanks, Patty. Cheers. Take care. All right. Bye-bye. Uh, let's go to line number three. Peter, you're on the air.
4: Yes, Paddy. Uh, about uh, Dr. Shorty, is you getting this morning? And uh, if anybody thinks that I'm going away, well, they don't know me very good, but I really think this is a, a serious problem across Newfoundland and Labrador, and it's only going to get worse. And this morning, like for my own self, I take a family physician in Trendy Bay, Conception Bay, or Placentia Bay, or St. John's, even as, as far as Vanavesta Bay if I had to, you know. But I don't really believe that I'm the one that should be on here this morning talking to you. Like, you know, the people of all those places that I just named, there's multiple places in those bays and I believe like the town councils and the mayors, you know, should be having their own meetings and then having their meeting with their MHAs and uh, you know, they should be the ones that's you know, putting up the fight for for the people who don't have doctors instead of uh, just sitting idly by Uh, in our area now we got a P.C. M.H.A. Jeff DeWire, and then you know, like uh, in trendy Bader, you got Lloyd Parrott down the other way, and, I, and as you know, like I'm a strong Liberal supporter, but I only support people who do what I helped get them elected to do, and you know, and this is uh, far from the slice happening right now. I c- I can't agree with what's happened here to uh, the doctor shortage. gives a fast food outlet with the Charlotte workers to go and bring in immigra- immigrants from other places, same as fish plant workers and things like that. And, you know, I really don't think the government got any intentions of bringing in any more doctors. So, like, if the cost is so high, why don't we cut back, like, we got seven MPs in Ottawa, we got 42, I believe, MHAs there in Newfoundland, 500,000 people, maybe we should cut it back to 30 and save some money that way, cut some spending that way.
1: Well, there has been been a number of new doctors hired. The problem is they're retiring quicker than we can hire them.
4: Yes, and, you know, like... uh, but, you know, like have said that. Now, Paddy, I agree with what you're saying. But, you know, the fish plants are still working and the McDonald's are still working. And you got Ukrainians coming here this morning and I'm not against that. I'd like to see 500,000 Ukrainians come here to Newfoundland. That's that would, what I would like to see. And at least 100,000 probably stay.
1: Okay, but there's a difference Canada. between working in fast food or at a fish plant and a uh, doctor, for instance, because you don't need any credentials to be transferred to Canada to work in a fish plant. It, it, none of that's required. The issue that we had, Dr. Call earlier, an Irish doctor, talk about the fact that there's such a problem here in the country let alone the province, with someone who's trained, whether it be in Dublin, Ireland, or in Barcelona, Spain, or Munich, Germany, or whatever, to have their credentials transferred to Canada. That's just an unnecessary barrier that we've got put in place. So I'm not so sure it's as much as, I mean, there's lots of foreigners who are here, doctors, tons of them, as we all know. So
4: we all accept them gracefully, and I just didn't know if you had the war refugees. And all those plant workers and everybody else added into the 124,000 doctors so that they say that we don't have. And, you know, like we got unions should be out there who's fighting for not only for the health care workers, but there's other unions out there who hire welders, electricians, plumbers, whatever have you, carpenters. They, They should be also fighting for... Uh, the government for uh, health care for their workers. They're the ones that got to be off work and, and can't get the, the proper uh, to see a doctor within an ample time. You know uh, So you know we should be all together on this. That's what I'm saying, uh, Patty you know back in one day there when Brian Tobin was uh, premier and uh, there was a strike between uh, government and uh, nurses. And everybody, all the nurses got together in that union at that time, and he wore a plate. Mr. Tobin, we will remember. Yeah. So maybe, you know, we should have a bumper sticker. Mr. Fury, we will remember.
1: This has been forever in the works, though. Uh, again, not to defend or to criticize anyone just for the sake of it, but this is not Fury's doing. Uh, And there's more doctors being hired that are just retiring or leaving so quickly. And people don't want to hear this, but too bad. We're just going to have to say it because it's the facts of the matter. The competition to get a doctor is extreme. Also, there's more doctors in this province today than ever before which I I guess is part and parcel with some of the chronic illnesses that we deal with and the age of the population. But there's more doctors and more nurses working in Newfoundland and Labrador today than ever in our history. Yet we find ourselves with 125,000 of us, me included, that don't have a family doctor. So there's a lot of real valid concerns, and I share them. But there's also the the issue surrounding how difficult it is to get a doctor, and people think it's all about money. Just think about it out loud. If I'm graduating from the University of Toronto, And I'm able to pick and choose a job wherever I want in the country or around the world. If it's all about money and money only, that'd be one thing, but it's probably gotta be fairly difficult to recruit a doctor to work in some smaller, more isolated parts of any province, anywhere in the country. I would think, I mean, they need and want to be mobile, they're in demand, amenities, opportunities for their children and their partners and all the rest of it. And I do think some communities do a great job. I know on Fogo Island, they're actively working as a community to be part of the attracting a doctor as opposed to waiting for government to do all the heavy lifting because I think that's an important thing like they did on Bell Island. Now, Dr. A.R. apparently is soon going to be finished up there, but everybody plays a role in, in bringing a doctor to town.
4: Yes, well, I mean, you got to to listen to what you're saying, and there is mirror to it, you know, but what are we going to do? You know, like, are we going to just uh, roll over and play dead? But, Patty, in, in construction and every other in the oil industry and things like that, <coughs> excuse me, and uh, – uh, you know, like some people pay more money to attract somebody they want in the other, in the other, from the other company to get that particular worker. And maybe we're want to have the up the ante. Maybe we'll have to give in Roaring and maybe we'll have the, the council will have to come up with something and give free, uh, free, free space, office space, things like that, you know? And, uh, anything at all to attract them, but then it goes back to uh, the medical center in Whitburn and nothing has changed out there, and uh, you know, even if they had a full staff of doctors there, it would make a lot of difference to uh, Trinity, Placentia, and, uh, and Conception Bay. And uh, you know, like I'm not blaming it at all on one, just, just one politician or anything like that, but there is things that can to be done. But it just may cost a little more to get it done.
1: Well, I would think if I'm a politician or if I'm an advisor, I... I would imagine there's a huge political victory to dealing with the doctor shortage. So, if I can hire more doctors and we can show that fewer and fewer people are on wait lists to get into a collaborative care clinic and fewer and fewer Newfoundlanders are uh, without family doctors, Labradorians, then there's a political victory there. So, I don't quite understand how people think the government doesn't want to bring doctors in because that's a political win. Like, between now and the next time we go to vote, if the province can display the fact that, well, 125,000 people Without a family doctor is now fifty thousand. Why? Because we hired a bunch of doctors. That would be a massive political victory. So I don't know why anybody thinks they don't want people to have a doctor. I just don't understand the political side of that conversation. But I'd like to have a family doctor. I'll put that in there. Yes. I'm on the wait list for Patient Connect NL. Yeah. Uh, anyway, Peter, last word to uh, you. Go ahead.
4: Last word is money talks, and that matters to most people when they're getting uh, going to seek employment. And, uh, and same for doctors. So there's a whole lot of benefits we can give here to go along with a few extra dollars, like free off space, stuff like that, and uh, sweeten the deal a little bit. And I'm sure we'll come up with uh, at least 50% of what we need. Appreciate
1: Thanks, the buddy. time, Peter. Thank you. All right, take okay. care. Okay. Bye-bye. Bye bye. Uh, let's take a break. When we go back. Neil's in the queue. He wants to talk about municipal government. Which one? We'll find out. Uh, welcome back. Let's go to line number five. Neil, you're on the air.
12: Yes good morning uh Patty. uh thanks a lot for taking my call Pleasure Petty. uh first of all I got to say you know many years ago uh, when you wanted to get something out open to the public it was always called uh, CBC but the last 10 years since uh since you came on with your show and everything else, all you hear now is called Patty Daly, Patty Daly. So <laughs> <laughs> you have gained a lot of respect in this province, and uh, I guess you're the number one show right now.
1: Well, I appreciate the kind of words. I know I'm not everyone's cup of tea, and that's nature to beast.
12: Well, you got my vote of confidence.
1: I appreciate it. Thank um, you.
12: Anyway, Petty, uh, my call this morning is, you know, uh, <clears throat> every week on the V O C M news or whatever you you hear of stories of councils around the, around the province uh, problems and so on. I'm calling from the town of Balline here now, and uh, we came up with a situation here uh, with uh, with uh, a councillor uh, that was probably doing some things you shouldn't be doing. And, uh, well, I guess in a nutshell, uh, better at all, what, what had happened, uh, uh, there was a counselor here that was uh, got a electric car and was plugged into the town uh, town hall, the community center, all winter, right up to two weeks ago when he got caught in the act and, uh, and the, someone took pictures to... Uh, to prove it all and whatever. And uh, so questions went out then to the council, you know, why this happened? Was it allowed to happen? Was it done illegally by the councilor or what, you know? And uh, what expenses was incurred with, with this happening over the last three or four months? Now, I know we're all going through hard times here uh, in place, the economy and everything else. And we are—we're the taxpayers here in Balline that's paying the 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 light bill, I guess, uh, for the town services and uh, for someone to go in and plug in and free a charge and charge up the car every every night. Uh, you know, j- just not acceptable. But uh, I guess a big issue when the when the council was approached, they won't. Uh, they won't reply, they won't tell anyone why it happened, uh, was it allowed to happen, was it done illegally, or whatever. So, you know, uh, it's not a good situation to be in, I guess.
1: Okay, so uh, a member of council uses the charging station at the town hall. That's Is that what we're talking about, Neil?
12: Well, yes. First of all, i got to say, it, it, it's not, it's not a, a, a certified charging station. They were plugged into a one ten outlet. Oh, okay. It seems me or you have in our house, but the, the one thing of uh, you know plugging in and uh, free of charge, and, and the taxpayers having to pay their 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 uh, their services, uh, it was also a major fire hazard, a uh, fire concern. Uh, this this car used to be plugged in overnight and uh, left unattended. So there was a possible uh, plugged into a 110 outlet, uh, there was a great possibility, you know, something could have shorted out the car, could have shorted out on the cars in, the town uh, building in, and caused a fire and burned the building down. Now where were we to? Uh, building burned down because of off this or whatever. So there was two issues, uh, one of, you know using the the services uh uh was unaccepted and refer counsel to prevail off this service, which they knew wasn't allowed, and then for you know creating a fire hazard, which was very important as well
1: well, even at the the very fundamental first question is is this person has this person been given permission to do it? And if so, what is the financial obligation of this person? Or is there insurance concerns or whatever else people want to ask? Because if you're a member of council, these are pretty fundamental questions. People aren't going haywire trying to, you know, play gotcha with anybody. So if you're a Bolling counselor, uh, just simply tell Neil and anybody else who's concerned if permission was granted. That's it. And then we'll Pardon? go from there.
12: That's a point well taken, uh, Patty, and, and you hit the area on the head there. And that was all done and expected, but uh, they just refused to come back and say why. Now, I did check in with uh, m- municipal affairs, and any, anything of this is totally not accepted under the Municipals Act that someone went in. So for, for an example, if they were allowed to do that, well, me and you could go down with all our power tools and plug into a one can outlet from the town hall, charge up all our batteries and so on and so forth, and walk away. Now, if I was to do that, uh, I, I would be there five minutes and someone would be out and saying, what are you doing? Get, get, get out of there. You're not allowed to do this. But uh, in this particular case, it was a counselor, and uh, and they were doing, it, you know, uh, I don't know, illegally or what. But there is evidence that you know other members knew that it was happening, but no one ever bothered until they got caught.
1: <laughs> yeah, let me see what I can find out, Neil. I'll just send along an email, see if I can get an answer.
12: Well, I did uh, speak to Municipal Affairs uh, and they made a quick call in and uh, all they got back was, uh, yes, okay, uh, we're not going to do it anymore and uh, we're going to put a policy there. But like I told the fellow in uh, Municipal Affairs, it was like uh, me and you were at moose hunting and... uh, and we're up and we shoot some moose illegally. And, and the warden comes along and catches us right there and neck. And we says, boy, oh, we're sorry. We're not going to do that anymore. And he says, go on. Okay, that's all right. Go on. So this is where we're to, personally. But the main concern is why this council will not, you know, put out a public announcement to the people saying, look, uh, this went on and whatever, you know, uh, under, under the Municipals Act, Patty, uh, uh, misfailance is an act of wrongdoing, which happened here. Nonfailance mm-hmm. is where council fails to act on the matter. So, you know, this is two important things within the Municipals Act, and uh, and you're just... I don't know. Uh, it's a council there that's run by five people and whatever they say goes and yeah, no one
1: else. Which is unfortunate because yeah. there's some good stuff going on in Balline. I know the work they do to deliver uh, food uh, hampers to seniors and the move towards some alternative forms of energy to reduce costs for operations stuff. So there's interesting stuff going on in Balline. But like I say, and I'll say it again, is sometimes you know getting an answer, even if it's not the one you want, is better than silence. So even if they just gave you the base information, and it might be something that didn't satisfy you, but it's better than not hearing anything. Neil, I'm late for the news, but I appreciate the time and the kind words this morning. Thanks a lot. Very well, sir. Thank you very much, sir. Take my hike My pleasure. All the best. Bye-bye. All right, let's go ahead and take a break for the news. Don't go away.
0: Join Brian Medor weekdays at noon for a comprehensive update on news from every corner on all levels, newsmakers, weather, and more. Join us on your VOCM at noon. Welcome back to the show. Let's go to line number six.
1: Say good morning to the independent member of the House of Assembly, elected in and serving the folks of Humber Bay of Islands. That's Eddie Joyce. Good morning, Eddie. You're on the air.
13: Thank you, Patty, for taking my call again. No problem. Uh, Patty, I'll call again. Uh, This is something very dear to me. is the cataract uh, wait list in the uh, surgeries for uh, Western Newfoundland and Labrador. Uh, April 1st, the, uh, the head recorder. Um, pretty soon, the three specialists will be finished. The quota, with still 800 people uh, on the uh, on the waitlist now who will have the col- uh, uh, consult, and they will not be done until starting next April. Um, I- I'm I'm baffled why, um, and it's all over a personality
1: conflict with the minister Hagee and the specialist. Why this is not done? Explain the capacity issue for me uh, one more time, Eddie, for those who don't know.
13: One is is they get a quota. For for the well, that's what I meant. quota, not Passi, yeah, yeah. Um, they they get a quota for a number that that they, they, that they can do um, uh, with the private clinics, and then they're, they're saying, okay, whoever's left on it can go to the other hospitals uh, in the region, public hospitals to get it done. For example, for for a year, year and a half, Stevenville wasn't even doing cataract surgeries; they couldn't do them cornerback couldn't do them because of COVID. And now they, they can get a day. The one specialist does all the uh, glaucoma across the province, Newfoundland, Labrador, What John Hagee is suggesting that he should cancel that and do cataracts. And here's the facility in in uh, western Newfoundland who can take care of all the wait lists. There will never be a wait list as long as, as you can continue just with the quotas that are given. So next year, um, the people who are being counseled now will start their surgeries next April 1st. By then, there will be another 700, 800 people on a waitlist waiting till 2024. It's just madness. And the, the, if, if you if you look at the, uh, the Canadian uh, Institute um, uh, for Health Institute information, there's three provinces in Canada that's lagging behind pre-COVID. Uh, for cataract surgeries, that's fallen behind. Newfoundland is one, and the reason, right in the report, the reason is because they won't use private clinics. So he, here's here's um, uh, Premier Fury last week talking about putting five students uh, more seats in in the um, in, for medical, and he said, well, if people go to uh, school and they're from the province, there's a better chance they're going to stay. I agree with that philosophy. I will tell the Premier now, if people get cataract surgeries, there's a better chance that they're going to have their vision and, and their quality of life back. And you heard the Premier of the province come in and say, okay, we're going to do a process to to get rid of the wait list for orthopedic surgery in the province. But yet we still won't do for cataract surgeries. It's like it, it's astonishing how, how a personality conflict with, with Minister Hagee and the three specialists is making people suffer. Every excuse, every excuse that Minister Hagee came up with was proven false. Right from the wait list, right from the it's cheaper to do it there. They would eliminate the whole wait list. And you hear John Hagee standing in the House of Assembly on a regular basis say, Oh, we're within 112 days of the people. You are correct, Minister, but you're forgetting about the 800 people on the wait list who, who aren't even on list number one. That is the problem. They they can't get included until they get the consult. And once they get the consult, then they got to wait a year to get it done it just baffles me like like i know people are calling the premier's office they're, they're calling jerry burns office scott reed's office they won't even talk to him won't even talk to him about it the premier of this province has all the information the premier of the province knows what i'm saying is correct the premier of the province needs to get spine and go to a minister haggie and say get this done get it done i even offered the premier Province to come out and i will get people sitting down and explain it to them i asked them to meet western health western health are pushing to get this done they have the wait list patty just the other thing on the wait list the, the, the minister uh, to the Department of Health went out and gave $250,000 to Western Health, probably about two years ago, a year and a half ago, to get a, a better view of all the wait lists. One of the people, they have intake workers right at this private clinic at the Apex building. They have... They have They have intake workers who are doing this work who are paid by Western Health, who are funded by John Hagee's office. So they start calling people, okay, and they start matching up. People might have passed away, might have moved away, might have passed. They might have got their surgeries done somewhere else. Third ones. it's Western Health who compiled this list. This is not some list that's pulled out of fantasy air. This is done by Western Health on the advice and the funding from from Minister Hagee's office. So everybody's aware of the wait list, but for for some reason, the premier will not step in and tell John Hagee, get this done. And I heard you earlier talking about how how it would be a great win for the uh, province if we got more doctors in. I agree with you. politically. it
1: would be. Absolutely. You know, the whole business about uh, cataract surgery and stuff, it's a few years ago now. It came out of absolutely nowhere, where there was all kinds of uh, threats of legal action and all this and that because people were paying out of pocket to go to a privately operated clinic. Then there was some accommodations made, and the doctors can charge MCP. So let's just let's just get down to the reality here if there's an opportunity to clear up a backlog for cardiac procedures cataract surgery hip and knee replacement whatever it takes like some of these things are you know i know it's not easy to, to hire a doctor but it was easy enough to come up with a decision for a day surgery for hip and knee replacement so to free up a bed right that yeah. makes sense yeah. if we have nurse practitioners or lpns can set up a private clinic let them build mcp if we got private doctors or uh, doctors operating in a private facility that can do the cataract surgery let's let them do it I mean, I mean, what are we talking about here? All we're going to end up doing is costing the province more as people's eyesight deteriorates to the point where they might become blind. Then what? So we're just creating a mess where one can be avoided. As far as I can tell from what I understand regarding the issue, I'll give you the last word, Eddie, because I've got to go.
13: Petty, I'll, I'll just tell you this. There was new specialists came in St. John's. And and uh, I think he joined uh, Dr. Jackman's office. And then what happens is when new specialists comes in with the quota, you split the quota. They split the quota. That's the way it's done in the You get the quota. It's four to three specialists in Cornerbrook. Because then the quota was a bit low, Eastern Health Eastern Health, gave each surgeon an extra 300 patients each from the wait list. But they won't do it in Cornerbrook. Like it's time for the Premier of this province to get a spine and, and, and get this fixed, meet with Western Health, meet with the people, meet with your own constituents, Premier. It's time. They just gave six within the last, say, month, month and a half, 600 people. In eastern Newfoundland, off the wait list, while there's still 775 to 800 people in western Newfoundland suffering, quality of life is gone, all because of personality conflict with John Hagee and the the people, and the premier province got to step in. It's it's just sad. It's it's beyond anything that I thought the liberal government would ever do, is not take care of seniors and their eyesight appreciate the time thanks Eddie Eddie thank you opportunity for an opportunity again to, to, to get this out because I refuse
1: to, to let it go all the best thank you you're welcome bye-bye it's Eddie Joyce is the independent member for Humber Bay of Islands when we come back there's a caller in the queue wants to talk about bed availability in the province's long-term care facilities don't go away welcome back to the show let's go to line number two good morning caller you're on the air
11: hi how are you doing
1: okay thank you how about you
11: good So, I was calling about the bed availability in long-term care facilities. Okay. So, I have a family member on a floor at the long-term care facility, and they actually have nine beds available on one floor, and another floor is completely closed down. So when I read on the news or listened to the radio yesterday and heard about the man who has been in the hospital for a year waiting to get into the long-term care facility, and in the last three weeks he's been in the bed in emergency, it just made me infuriated to know that a family, and he's not the only one waiting to get into a long-term care facility, is is going through that with him when there's so many beds available in long-term care facilities.
1: It's not just the bed. It's not just the bed, though, either. Some of these issues are directly related to staffing shortages. I remember when the Pleasant View facility opened up, Mm -hmm. this big long-term care facility here in St. John's opened, (laughs) they had to go out of the country immediately to hire, I think it was 30 personal care attendants, if I'm not mistaken, from Jamaica. So that's what we've got going on here. We've got beds. We just don't have staff.
11: And... That is a huge problem with our healthcare facilities here is staff shortages and they're overworking staff and staff is getting burnt out. And I just think uh, John Hagee or Dr. John Hagee could do something more than what he's doing to help get the staff not as short,
1: if that makes sense. Yeah, I mean, you know, it might be easier to attract personal care attendants than it would be doctors. I don't know what the the educational opportunities, the numbers of seats for PCAs are in this province, but I do remember distinctly when they opened up the massive long-term care facility here, they had to go out of the country to hire PCAs. They had oh, tons of beds, but no staff.
11: Well, I do uh, remember you saying there earlier how the... the doctor shortages there is people here qualified to be doctors but they have to do um, I forget what it's called now to like become a doctor here to be able to practice it here
1: yeah some of that's a a federal issue
11: they have workers in the long term care facility, that like I know they have an LPN shortage and an RN shortage, that are qualified RNs in their country, but are unable to get it here because there are so many procedures and ropes that they have to jump across to be able to do it here.
1: Yeah, I mean, we had a doctor call the program earlier about that topic. You know, we need to figure it out on the federal stage. We absolutely need to figure it out from province to province. It's just silly, right? Like if someone would be willing to come here, wherever in the province, to even do a 12-week locum to help ease the burden, but is refusing to take on the energy, the effort and the cost to do it, we've got a problem. I mean what difference does it make to work in Ontario, B C, Alberta, Saskatchewan or Newfoundland, Labrador? Like it should be none. We've just got too many barriers that are in the way and just unnecessarily so.
11: Exactly. And that's it's just it's really upsetting, especially like I'm I'm in my thirties and I can't imagine being in that family's shoes and seeing a family member go downhill all because of the crisis our healthcare system is in. It's absolutely, it it scares a person. Like it scares me to know that our healthcare is in such a crisis and now I have a little baby and like, you know, my mom is getting older and everything. So like it makes you worry about what the future may hold for us and people my generation i guess you could say well my mom's generation who you know really need the healthcare system more than what we do right now
1: Possibly so. Yeah, I mean, I think it's a shared worry across the board. Maybe it's not front and center for some folks, but I think in the bigger scheme of things, uh, how healthcare is delivered. And plus, I'm really anxious to see the, the next piece of work done by Health Accord about the so-called blueprint for the implementation of uh, the 57 recommendations. But we just have to... Change the way healthcare is delivered anyway. Because if it was just about money, and I heard Peter earlier say, you know, just pay the doctors more and they will come. I'm not so sure it's as simple as that. But we just, we spend so much money on healthcare and we're not getting the outcomes. So it can't simply be about money because if it was, we'd be home free, right? We spend, what is it, about 36% of the budget is on healthcare?
11: I think it's how the money in the healthcare is being managed and put out more so than the money going into the health care. I think the money there is there for the health care. I think it's how it's being used.
1: That's probably and, a fair point, Yep,
11: yeah. And uh, I guess spread out across the board with our health care. If we're spending 30% in our health care we have the money there it's how it's being used and facilitated I
1: think that's a wise point because uh, I do think we don't have a, a revenue problem we have a distribution problem and I think that's the same thing on the federal scene I appreciate the time this morning caller thanks for uh, making time for us
11: no problem thanks yeah. have a good day
1: you too bye-bye, bye-bye. bye-bye. yeah there is money it's just, look, again, if it was simply just spend, 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 spend more on healthcare and everything solved, well, we would have solved it years ago. Now there's fair points to be made about the federal government increasing health care transfers to the province, but again, money coming in doesn't necessarily mean it's going to be spent where it needs to be spent and have the impact that we want it to have. Anyway, I think the last bilateral agreement between the province and the federal government was mental health uh, services and long-term care, if I remember correctly. Anyway, let's take a break for the newscast. When we come back, we're speaking with you about whatever's on your mind. Don't go away.
0: Weekday mornings from 5.30 to 9. Jumpstart your day with Jerry Lynn Mackey and Ben Murphy. Newsmakers, traffic, weather, and more during your VOCM morning show.
1: Welcome back. Let's go to line number, sorry, Dave, you have some fingers in the air. It's line number four. Okay, Verna, you're on the air.
0: Good morning,
14: Perry. How you
1: doing? Not too bad, I suppose. How about you? <laughs>
14: Okay, I'm calling in regards to the not the Bell Island Ferry today.
1: We're not talking about the ferry today? No. Good.
14: <laughs> not that we still don't have problems because the government is all involved, but hey, we have other problems as well, and that's government run as well. It's in regards to our doctor situation on Bell Island. I think it's time that they stop throwing money at appointments and making new positions to resolve our health care issues. Listen to the doctors and nurses and nurse practitioners. There's, there are enough government management or maybe too much trying to handle and run the healthcare system. It's time to start treating it as essential service, not a system.
1: I think they do. So what what positions are you referring to? Uh, Dr. Megan Hayes, who's now the new deputy minister responsible for recruiting and retaining healthcare workers? Is that one? Right. I think that one makes sense, personally, because well, obviously we haven't had enough focus on it. Remember, it's not that long ago the NLMA was asking for the plan, and the oh, province says right. we had a plan, but we didn't have it on paper. So I think someone who's working on that and nothing but that is probably a pretty good idea. And
14: um, I hope they are. like I hope, in regards to government management, they're letting that person, that position, do their job and not have the bureaucrats have the last call on it. Because the problem is the people who are having the calls on it are not qualified and experienced with the healthcare system to make the proper decisions when it comes at the end of the day. A prime example is on Belle Island. We have a doctor here who is willing to work Monday to Friday, but yet they're really willing to send him back and put us back to. I'm not. I'm not exactly sure of the cost per day. Locums coming here on an average of $2,500 a day. We could have a doctor Monday to Friday that we wouldn't need the locums coming, and that would be a win-win situation. We would have a doctor. They would have cost savings what is the problem
1: there well I don't know Uh, as far as I understand Dr. Ar's possible last day is Friday so
14: he got his ticket bought already he is gone Friday
1: okay so his last day is Friday Um, Mm -hmm. so let me ask you this this is just a question do you think it's an attractive option for a doctor to make their home on Bell Island given all the concerns that you bring forward, and they're legitimate, reasonable concerns, whether it be with the ferry or other operations or whatever is going on. Do you think that some of the problem here is convincing or attracting a doctor or any healthcare professional to work in certain parts of the province? I don't, I'm just asking what you, your perspective
14: you have, to, you have to treat them, the areas in the uniqueness to what, where they are, where they need them at and what is required. Uh, we have someone who's been here, done that, and wants to come back and do it. But they want to do it with consideration and respect to what they're saying. They are he knows what the bureaucrats are. He knows the politics of being already here. Why not listen and say, okay, he left before. Let's keep him this time. This is what he's saying, and it makes sense. Because it's making sense to the people. Why isn't it making sense to Okay,
1: Vernon, what exactly is Dr. AR saying?
14: Monday to Friday?
1: No, what's, like, what no, handcuffs are on Dr. Ayer and what does he say about it?
14: Well, uh, this is only my opinion in regards to Dr. Tucker. When he was here, he couldn't be associated with the hospital because if you're associated with the hospital, you've got to do weekends. You've got to do nights. And if you don't want that, then you have to have your only, uh, your own private practice. That's my understanding, and I would gladly uh, would wish for Hagee to come and explain it more. That's my understanding on. it.
1: Yeah. Okay. So um, if you if you uh, if Dr.
14: you Ar doesn't want to work mon he wants to work Monday to Friday. He doesn't want to work weekends and he doesn't want to work nights to overdo himself so that he's not here for the people in the end.
1: Yeah. If hospital that's privileges that's come with a commitment, uh, that's true.
14: But like you say, you've got it. It's got to be give and take. It's not all take, take, take. And the government's got to sit back, listen, and take it all in. And what is the best? I mean, we don't want a doctor that's drained. And when he's coming in, he don't even know who your name is, where you've been, because he's after working seven days, and uh, plus the week, uh, the weekend, on top of the nights. I don't want a doctor that's going to be doing that.
1: Would you? I don't know, but uh, I, I'm not so sure that we can have people dictate what they will or will not do though either can we or is that just something that we're going to have to live with
14: uh, hey the government is dictating to it right, uh, I'm
1: mm-hmm. not sure what that means but
14: well, okay they're closed for the they're closed up uh, uh, the senate for the uh, the summer they don't want to overwork theirself they can only be so many places so many times I mean we have to have different departments for different things. Maybe we have too many departments with too many th- people in all them departments. The left don't know what the right is doing. Patty, I don't have all the answers. Either do the I. Government.
1: God no knows government. I don't.
14: Like I said, But I know we've got an excellent doctor here who wants to stay here, and he's proven himself here.
1: I appreciate the call.
14: Thank you. You have a great day, you, Patty. You
1: too, Verna. All the Bye best. Now. Bye-bye. This story I spoke about this morning about the proposed crematorium in Cornerbrook and the pushback from a citizens group. Join us on line number five is one of the organizers, Kathy Peddle. Good morning, Kathy. You're on the air. Hi there.
15: I, I heard you were interested in the crematorium issue in corner work and the sign issue, so I thought I'd give you
1: a call. I'm glad you did, because, you know, I don't know where you want to start, but it's a curious story. It went from local pushback, whether it be about environmental concerns or health, uh, what have you, with the crematorium, all the way to, now, human rights considerations, constitutionality of the letters that are being sent out to the residents. So you tell us where you want to start. Oh, so
15: I with uh, with the crematorium in in 2017 um, the funeral home here on Country Road applied to the city to put a crematorium in the middle of a residential neighborhood and it got turned down and it's been an issue for five years so in spring of last year um, May 2021 they finally got approved and the, prov- the approval they have is, is the approval to use the land for a crematorium so that's when the protest started, and appeals started with the appeal board and that sort of thing and um, and we put up signs that said that we we were against having a crematorium in a residential area and not just in our area we don't think a crematorium should be in any residential area in anywhere in Newfoundland or Canada. A lot of the problems are coming from the fact that there are no regulations on any government level so federal, provincial, municipal, there are no regulations. So crematoriums operate uh, totally unregulated. They can do what they want, and there's no monitoring. There's nobody checking up on them for air emissions or what what impact it has on the soil, the air, the water, the people, the people living close by with breathing issues, the economic factor like our property value will go down nobody wants to buy a house near a crematorium and the social issue is and the mental health issue are two of the biggest issues that we've been dealing with even since this started just a proposal um it's it hasn't started building yet, but the people in this area are a lot of seniors, and some people have lived here for 65-plus years, and just the effect it's had this last year on people socially and mentally, it's its unbelievable, really, and we have had zero help from the city, like I think what people are most frustrated about is you elect city councilors and mayor with the understanding they're going to do things to protect the residents and make your life better, and do what they can, do what they can to make sure your air, and water is safe, that sort of thing is almost a given. But we have we have an issue here in Corner Brook where the mayor and some of the councilors are dead set to see this crematorium sited right in the middle of a residential neighborhood neighborhood and they don't seem to care
1: well How there's certainly a couple in st john's right in the middle of densely populated neighborhoods now based on what you know and the work that you've done on this front what are the air pollution risks
15: so we have we have data from health canada we have data from the world health organization and they both say a crematorium should never be sited where people live okay and it, it's as clear-cut as that. Like, you can go into mercury emissions that people say nothing comes out of the smokestack. Well, vaporized mercury doesn't have a smell, and it's invisible, but it lands in the water, it lands in soil, and it's in the area. And vaporized mercury is one of the most toxic elements there. Are. So we're, we're very, very concerned. We have people in the neighborhood around medication for depression and anxiety and uh, for, because of the stress of this, and economically, yes if the crematorium goes there, the crematorium owner will make money but all the rest of us are going to lose you know, 15 to 20% on our houses when we sell them, so selling and
1: moving is not an option. So I understand the concerns. And then the story takes a really interesting twist, when now for the second time, letters coming from Corner Brook, the the municipality, to residents, those especially who have put signs in opposition to the crematorium on their lawn, the lawyer for Corner Brook says they shouldn't be at it, and it does not align with the Charter of Rights and Freedoms. There's been a Human Rights Commission complaint formally lodged. So where are we? with any of these things
15: our signs were up for eight months before anybody said a word about them okay our signs are mostly handmade we have a, a lady in our neighborhood who's an artist and she she spent hours and hours painting signs the signs are very respectful they're nothing like what you would have seen at freedom convoy or anything they just say no neighborhood crematorium or no residential crematorium that sort of thing um so what happened was the funeral home owner complained to the city that our signs were hurting the business, his his funeral home business, and he wanted the signs taken down. And the city told him, no, they couldn't do that, that we had a right to have our signs up. But about a month or so later, he complained again, and this time, the city decided um, well, as our mayor said, it, the signs had been up long enough in his judgment, and it was time for them to come down, and and because the funeral home had called in and complained, he was duty-bound to act upon that, so we received letters. I received a letter that said I had a certain number of days to take my signs down or face consequences. So, and the letter said it was because we didn't have a permit for signs. So that was like late on a Friday afternoon. So Monday morning, I went to City Hall to get a permit for my sign and was told they weren't issuing permits for signs. So I filled out an application anyway, but that's another story. Um So they decided, after much debate and their opinion from their lawyer and whatever, they decided to send out a second letter and said they were giving an extension to June the 3rd, and we had to have our signs down, or we would face consequences. Now, I had asked at the Planning and Development Department at City Hall what the, the consequences would be, and it was fines and or jail time. So... It's pretty bizarre when the city thinks it's okay to put an industrial incinerator like mere feet from somebody's backyard. That's okay. But if we put up a sign, we can go to jail for it.
1: So strange. <laughs> okay, so uh, interestingly, and I think excellent uh, news, Cornbrook Mayor Jim Parsons just called the show. He's in the queue. So we'll get his reaction as soon as we come back from this break. How does that sound, Kathy? okay perfect terrific appreciate your time okay
14: thank you
1: take care bye-bye all Bye. right let's go ahead and take that break oh sorry maybe a bit quick on the button there cornerbrook mayor jim parsons right after this welcome back to the show let's go to line number two say good morning to the mayor of the city of cornerbrook that's jim parsons mayor parsons you're on the air hey patty how you doing doing not too bad this morning thanks for making time for the show how you doing
16: no good it's splitting the rocks out here is beautiful
1: okay. yeah not so much here on this right. coast
16: I, my wife is out in business out in, uh, and she just landed, and she said it's a bit foggy out there. So,
1: always is. Okay, let's get right down to it. You <laughs> just heard from Kathy Peddle. So right off the bat, with the documentation that is there from Health Canada and other health organizations about the pollution that comes out of a crematorium and the recommendation to never have them in a residential neighborhood, why is it being allowed in your city?
16: Well, we'll uh, I want to correct the record on a few things there, but uh, this, as uh, Kathy mentioned, came up in 2017. Uh, before I was involved in council of course and uh, at the time it was a split decision again uh, a big issue was uh, the provincial government who regulates air quality in the province didn't have any data on crematoria uh, to be able to make any opinion on whether or not it would meet any air quality standards and that kind of thing Uh, council at the time denied the uh, the application because it's a discretionary use in it's a community service zone adjacent to a, a residential zone it's not in a residential zone itself uh, this came up again last uh, may to uh, uh, in twenty twenty one Uh, And uh, this time, the province did provide a referral from the the Department of Environment. They did uh, take data from AMAC Environmental, which was collected on the same piece of equipment uh, for an application in Ontario. Ontario. Uh, and, uh, And I will quote, We foresee no issues with the installation of this unit. It meets all provincial air quality standards. Um, and so, in terms of the the objective data on it, uh, the for me, if if the province was not able to say that they felt this was okay, it would be a non-starter for me. And at the time, that's you know that was my position. Uh, but we do not regulate air quality at City quarter We don't have that ability, of course. Our authority here is the province. If the province says that they're fine with it and they think it's okay, then uh, it's and and again, there was an existing funeral home there for over twenty years. They wanted to add this piece of equipment to their service offering. Um, uh, Again, that's why it was approved at the time.
1: When the residents who had concerns put signs on their lawn and they were there for eight months and then all of a sudden they were told they couldn't have the signs on their lawn, what changed?
16: Well, the and I think Kathy mentioned correctly that there were complaints from the business um, that they felt that the signs were uh, uh, they had complaints from their patrons. Of course, uh, one was immediately like a uh, four by four sign there, immediately adjacent to their business. Um, so the claim came in, and I know staff did uh, again had to you know they wanted to be careful. They knew it was very politically sensitive, and uh, wanted to make sure that legality legality was uh, was uh, was followed um so you mentioned about our lawyer's opinion um, uh, it wasn't I, actually I'll just correct the record there. Our lawyer said, because we were asked, some counselors have been playing politics with this issue, of course. Uh, this was approved, the appeals board confirmed the decision. You can't overturn development approvals, that's not legal. Um, and you've seen that in St. John's with other developments as well. Um, so this became a bit of a political football in the last election, and it continues to be. Uh, legally, we can't overturn this decision, so I just want to say that. But the sign issue, um, legally uh, signs are not permitted in residential areas except for uh, plates for home-based businesses uh, or on businesses that are discretionary in the area such as like a you know something like a convenience store say um, that's not atypical across canada that's very typical in fact across many cities in canada you're not allowed to just place signage in residential areas our rules. Uh, uh, Council wanted our lawyer to look at it from a charter rights perspective. Uh, she gave an opinion, like again looking at case law, uh, suggested has suggested that we uh, that we revise our rules uh, to make them uh, clearer on some points. So um, the justification for it um, and other specifics. But the important thing that I think some people are conveniently ignoring is. Her advice ultimately was, we have no choice but under the Urban and Rural Planning Act and the City of Cornerbrook Act to enforce the rules and regulations as on the books now. And on the books now, we cannot give permits for these signs, so they are illegal. And we have to do enforcement, as is the law of the land now, not hypothetically. Um, we Listen, I'm sympathetic to these residents. I know that that has caused them a lot of stress. I believe they're being used politically by some people. Um, uh, I would not have approved it if I didn't think it was, uh, it was safe. Um, I didn't think it was appropriate for the funeral home that's already there. Um, and uh, but but truthfully I guess uh, we have committed to look at our regulations and try and uh, fix them they're about 10 years old uh, and I would guess we're not alone in that across the country but uh, but we have to follow the rules and it's very frustrating sometimes but you know, sure. we're,
1: uh, but it, we're it feels like what what do you say to this mayor Parsons that you're picking winners and losers you pick the business over the residents uh,
16: you, well, again, I think we're constantly have, uh, in any development, I mean, we typically get comments for and against things. Sure. Uh, in, in this case, I think that, like I said, um, I try to take a very, you know, measured, rational approach. Nothing was done. There's no hidden agenda here. Um, it's just this business, which is a funeral home that's been there for over 20 years, wanted to add this service. Um, it was appropriate for their service offering. As you mentioned, in St. John's, uh, the crematorium is adjacent to residence residential areas Um, the from a health perspective uh, again the air quality data is there it's very clear for this specific unit um, it's uh, it is by all determination safe and even the other records some of the ones that they referred to uh, say there is no causal link between any health issues and crematoria
1: and I haven't so. done any reading on it because I just saw the story yeah. this morning uh, last one and I know we're really out of time but Here. when people are told that there's threats of fines or jail time does the city of Cornerbrook have the authority to put anyone in jail for putting a sign on their lawn
16: well, the, the the irony of this is, is that uh, typically when we have like when you know we have issues of property complaints and things, quite often um, we uh, we have to respond to to complaints, investigate them, and, and enforce them. There's a lot of discretion involved, obviously, with the enforcement. Uh, in this case here, the residents were first sent a letter, a very gentle letter, saying like, "Look, these signs are not permitted in this area. Please remove them." And that was basically the extent of the communication. Um, some of council criticized that, uh, that letter and uh, demanded that it have in it uh, things like the penalties and those kinds of things. And instead of letting um, uh, enforcement staff uh, escalate as necessary and deal with the issue using their discretion, counselors should not be involved in enforcement. This is something that uh, we, don't, uh, we wouldn't want uh, MHA uh, giving you a speeding ticket or deciding if you were speeding. This should be an operational issue. Council should be involved. Staff should do enforcement, in my opinion, because we shouldn't be picking winners and losers. In this case, staff evaluated the uh, evaluated the complaint uh, and determined that, yeah, they, they're right. This is not illegal. This is not illegal uh, signage. So we, we've got to deal with it. Um, I, uh, I I want to uh, make sure that we do uh, fix these regulations. But that's the hand we're dealt. I didn't develop the regulations, uh, but we've got to work with them, right?
1: I wish we had more time because there's lots on Cornbrook's plate beyond this, but I appreciate Appreciate this this morning. Thanks, Mayor.
16: No, listen, any time. We'd love to talk about uh, talk about the summer, too.
1: Yeah, I'm, I'm up for that as well. But we're out of time for this morning. You've had the last word, sir. No, absolutely. Thank you. Take care. Bye-bye. It's Cornbrook, Mayor. Jim Parsons. All right, there's lots to get to, but we ran out of time. All right, we'll pick up this conversation again tomorrow morning right here on VOCM and Big Land FM's Open Line. On behalf of the producer, David Williams, I'm your host, Patty Daly. Have yourself a safe, fun, happy day. We'll talk in the morning. Bye-bye.